Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Elena. Welcome back to the In Search Of More podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Rabbi Shays Taub, a guest who's been on our conversation a number of times to talk about shame. And boy, did we get into it. Three-hour conversation, but there's a reason I like the longer conversations. I find for myself, there's often a lot more benefit I receive as a listener from one three-hour conversation versus three one-hour conversations. There's something that happens as the conversation goes on that allows the two people speaking in it or three people speaking together just to open up and access different different areas than they otherwise would. Hope you are able to listen to the whole thing and uh, I'd love to hear your feedback what you think about this one and if you'd like more like it. I'll see you on the other side. All right. We have attendees from all over the world. Through the miracle of modern technology. Rav Shays, maybe before we jump in, being that you're a speaker, maybe you can uh, answer this question. Very often speakers, they put it on their bios or they talk about it in their speeches, like how many countries or states or places right. they've spoken in. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be the sucker who likes something that nobody else likes. So if you say that uh, everybody, a hundred countries likes this guy, oh, okay, fine. All right, right. it's okay to like him too. Right. Countries, I, all right, I understand speakers, I've spoken in front of as many people. Okay. Maybe there was a time when it's, you know, it took a lot of work to get into uh you know, I, in my own lifetime, in my own career, I've seen that change. Like once upon a time, it was a big deal to be known outside of your own city. Like, oh, they brought you to California? You must be pretty big. <laughs> now it's like, it's all one world. Right. Right. Not quite as big a deal. Okay. One day they'll be talking about like podcast downloads and YouTube views and things like that. It says, remember this time in history when people cared and thought that was meaningful? Let me tell you what's meaningful now. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in. Um, I guess uh, we've, we've spoken about some pretty intense topics, you and I, but maybe this uh, takes the cake. We'll dive right in. So should I give some background to uh, our audience on how this? Yeah, tell a story. Up? Yeah, yeah. We'll tell a story. So Rabbi Taub has, uh, now, now, that, now that it's three, it's a, it's a chazaka, it's an, it's an entity. Done three fundraisers so far, charity campaign, and each one around this time of year. And the second one, which is a little over a year ago, uh, uh, Rabbi Taub held a um, all-day streamathon. We had learning and singers and special guests. So I was one such special guest. You were one of the special guests, Sally. Special guests. So now tonight I'm returning the favor. So 12.30 or so on a Saturday night, we begin talking, and I believe I started sharing about how your book on addiction, God of, God of your understanding, God of our understanding, had impacted me. And while I was talking, I shared about my own addiction, my addiction to sex, my addiction to pornography, and shortly thereafter, a day or so later, I get an anonymous email from someone, it's clear from the email address, and I'm sure you've seen this a number of times, that the email address was created specifically for the purpose of sending me this email. Yes. 
And the gentleman says, you know, I signed on to Rabbi Taub's um, streamathon. I was hoping to hear either a share by him or a, or a singer, Ellie Marcus, but instead I bumped into uh, one of his special guests, quote unquote, and there you are talking about pornography. And I have an addiction. I've tried to stop many times. I haven't shared this with anyone. And he shared how it's affecting his life. I recommended that we get on a call. He was worried about his anonymity. I said, you know, I don't have the technology to figure out who someone voices. If you don't tell me my who someone is by their voice, if you don't tell me your name, I don't know, we could have a conversation, but I feel I could be more helpful over the phone. So we speak. In the email, actually, he's, he said as much that he was a rabbi of the community, et cetera, and he's successful and growing and everything else, but this problem on the side existed. And uh, as we got to talking, I explained to him that at some point in time, this is going to have to, he's going to have to talk to his wife about it. He's going to have to uh, attend therapy or meeting, so something. You don't, uh, you don't get, you, you don't heal this on your own. I shared with him my story, but it's, first of all, in a relationship, how it's going to affect. Number two, which I guess is the topic of tonight, how it's going to affect himself when he has this part of him, this, this part of his life that he's suddenly working on, and he feels that it's a secret from the people closest to him. And uh, that was that conversation. We continued a dialogue, mostly anonymous over the course of the year. And several, about 10 months into our conversation, I get an email one day from his real address. And he tells me how he shared it with his wife. And somehow it even came up with his wife's family. And thank God he's doing much better. Yeah, he's sober. And in all areas of his life, he feels that uh, things, are, things are doing better. So this year, when you invited me again to a more primetime slot on uh, your uh, You did annual... so well last mm -hmm. year, Ali. We <laughs> decided to bring you on during the normal hours. Yeah, I heard the, uh, the, I heard the numbers started rolling in as soon as I got off the phone. Chaim Cohen, your illustrious host, offered to nickname me Elijah the Prophet and spell Prophet P-R-O-F-I-T. Ah, nice. <laughs> In any case, I thought you, that's a Rabbi Shea's Tav kind of joke. <laughs> In any case, I'll finish the story. Someone is asking about asking questions. There's a Q&A section. And should you uh, want to put the question in the Q&A section at some point in time during our conversation, Rabbi Taub or I, will mix it into uh, to our thoughts, either address it directly or mix it into our thoughts. In any case, this year when I was invited back, I thought to share the story that, you know, you thought we were just doing a fundraiser, but obviously we're doing something good. If from that fundraiser came a conversation that enabled this guy to share a secret. And how do I know it's good? Because I know from my own life what it was like to live with, um, with secrets for so many years. The secret one of my addiction, that was a secret I held for so many years, so much so to the point that my own therapist, who I had opened up with about my other secret, the fact that I was sexually abused as a child, he was the first person I told, I lied to him about the severity of my porn addiction for five years. I mentioned, yeah, I watched from time to time, but I never spoke, I was too ashamed to talk to him about the dependency and how many times I tried to stop and what I had done to try to stop and that I couldn't, et cetera. Anyways, back to here, I share this story again. I share, I share this story on, the, on your event this year, and I got an email from someone else. Again, How soon after? The same week. Um, you know, I think we spoke on Sunday night. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, Saturday or Sunday night, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I think it was Sunday for whatever reason. I probably by Tuesday I got an email from someone. So a few days. Yeah, very similar. Um, email address is created specifically for this purpose. And this person as well shares about an addiction, a little bit more graphic than uh, than than the previous one. We can choose to share or not share. I'm not uh, I'm not sure uh, based on the audience whether it's it's relevant to share the extent, but it was it was a sexual addiction that had progressed. Uh, pretty significantly and he had this secret a young adult and we as well got on the phone so when i shared this with rabbi taub that you know the similar experience he said maybe there's something about our conversations that's uh, inspiring people to relieve some of their shame why don't we do a uh, a webinar specifically about shame and tonight we are here talking specifically about shame so welcome rabbi taub Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, you're the boss. Yes. So where do I start with this, uh, with this um, huge topic? I guess where, where I'd like to go with this is in terms of the, um, well, let's, let's talk to us. What, what is the Jewish word for shame? What is the Jewish feeling of shame? What, what is this? What is this feeling? How is it different than other feelings? How does mm -hmm. Judaism understand it? I know from psychology and Brene, psychology, Brene Brown, I love her um, mm -hmm. uh, translation of shame. And I'll share what she explains shame. She explains shame is a fear. And it's the fear of not being worthy of connection. And being that humans are we're relational beings, we can't live in a vacuum, the worst punishment you can give to someone is solitary confinement. Most people would choose lashes over solitary confinement or extreme pain. It's that disruptive to us as people. So when someone has the fear that they're not being that they're not worthy of connection, it's effectively emotional solitary confinement. I can't really be in the same room as another person. A mask of me could, a fake version of me, but not me. And that fear of not being worthy of connect, of, of connection is corrosive. It's all uh, it's all um, it's all encompassing, and it affects literally every area of our life. That's the way she understands it. So I'd love to uh, hear from you. From a Jewish perspective, what is the word for shame? What do we? How do we understand it? Is it viewed mm -hmm. in the same, in the same way? That's my question to kick this off. Okay. So you know, it's interesting. I was just having a very interesting discussion discussion last night with my father. May he be well. He was uh, my mother and father were visiting for Hanukkah, and we had a very interesting discussion last night. Um. Actually, I took video of it. I couldn't resist. I sat up the camera in the new studio, and I got a very geschmack uh, half an hour podcast with my father. I don't know if I'll make it public at any point, but my father's a psychologist. And uh, one of the things we were talking about was uh, general semantics, which was a theory that was very fashionable back in the 60s, basically about the way that people relate to words and they get trapped, they get stuck with certain words. And uh, I won't elaborate now, but uh, it's worthy of another discussion another time. Um, for the context of our present discussion, I'll, I'll just say like this. One word can have vastly different meanings and more poignantly, vastly different experiences, what it's like to experience that, what, that which the word describes 
can be vastly different depending on the context. So even if we'll say there's a word called shame and in the holy tongue it's called busha or boishas, just knowing that word itself doesn't account for the fact that there can be a vast spectrum of experiences that all can be described with, the, with, with that word, and it can run the gamut from the most holy and sublime to the absolutely most toxic and destructive. Now, I, I understand that tonight we're probably going to focus more on the destructive kind of shame. That, that's our... So John Bradshaw, which is another one of my favorite writers yeah. on shame, refers to toxic shame and healthy shame. So Right, yes. Toxic shame. Right. So it, let, let, let's just first talk about healthy shame because, you know, there is such a thing and it's, and it's a wonderful thing. And it's, it's funny because I think understanding healthy shame can actually help you understand toxic shame. Um, and I'm using Brad Shaw's terms, although I'm not going to try to match his definitions, but we'll, we'll use those words. Those are good words. You, you called it, um, you know, the, the feeling of being unworthy of a connection. The fear of being unworthy. Or the fear of, of being unworthy yeah. of a connection. And that's actually, you, say, you said that's from uh, Brown, yeah? Brene Brown, yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty actually aptly uh, a good description of what it talks about in Chassidus about something called Yira Boishas. It's a, an awe. I don't like to use the word fear because fear is like, boogeyman in the closet, right? But a, a sense of awe um, that Hashem is so great. Hashem is so massive. Hashem is so infinite. I don't want to take up space. How can I take up space? If Hashem is the all, then how can there be anything else but him? I just want to dissolve into him. I just want to be part of him. And that, that's a healthy sense of shame. But let, let me point out a couple features of that. First of all, it doesn't mean that I'm bad or that I've done anything bad. It's actually not even talking about me. <laughs> it's talking about him. He's so infinite that even if I were an angel, it would feel inappropriate to be a secondary existence aside from his existence. So that's first. The term exists, you're ambitious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This, does, this sounds like a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. So first of all, it's not about me. It's about Hashem. It's not, I'm so unworthy. It's that Hashem is so infinite that I don't even want to take up space. I don't even want to, I don't want to subtract, so to speak, from his everythingness. But a second important point to realize is that the, the, the consequence of this this fear is not that, and therefore I should get away from him, and therefore I should go disconnect myself from him, but rather that I should surrender and become one with him. So <laughs> it's not that I'm going to allow this feeling to create a rift in the relationship. To the contrary, what I'm really fearing is the separation from him. And that if my own, this is a little bit deep here, if my own sense of selfhood 
is causing me to feel othered, then I'm, I'm afraid of that. I don't want that sense of selfhood to be an interruption between me just surrendering and becoming subsumed within the oneness. So the end conclusion is intimacy with God, not going and hiding and running and not trying and, 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 and thinking that I shouldn't be close to God. Now let's so, flip to turn that on its head. So toxic shame is the opposite of both of those things. First of all, toxic shame is really not about the greatness of God. It's really self-obsession. It's about how awful I am. And it's right. not about, and therefore I should surrender and become one with godliness. It's like, now I got to go and have this life that's totally separate from godliness or a part of my life that's totally separate from godliness. So, so you're, you're taking this to shame as disconnection from God. Can it also mean from people? Because I'm sure that's what Brene Brown meant in it, right? The fear of not being worthy of connection. You're just talking about the, top, the, the term Eurobaceous. Yeah, well, you're asking Which me specifically God. for the religious mystical definition. So right. that's, that, that, that's what I gave you. But um, you were saying how Brene Brown's definition jives well with. Yeah, if, you apply, yeah. if you apply those words to one's God concept, yes. Right. I mean, if we talk about healthy shame, right, healthy shame is what lets me know that I'm separate from you in the sense that uh, when I use the bathroom, I use it when you and others are not in it, right? It's That's healthy shame. When I uh, go out in public, I get dressed appropriately. I make sure I smell. Um, I'm, I carry myself in a certain way because that would, and healthy shame is what tells someone that, right? Don't, this is a fully appropriate by yourself. There's something, terrible about doing these things just right. when you go out in public or whatever or in certain settings you act in a certain way you carry yourself in a certain way and that's what enables connection right right for example if someone doesn't have that fear maybe they'll have a a toxic smell as an example which would make it very difficult to connect with this person because they don't have this healthy fear of taking care of some basic things think when i say toxic shame it's there's almost nothing we can do about it. We can't shake it. There's a stain that I can't get off. There's a smell that won't be removed. It just feels so, at least that's the way it feels. Uh, you know, you, when you're describing healthy shame or call it even, you know, I'll, let, me, let me lower the bar even and call it functional shame or shame that serves us well. Basically, you're describing things that I do out of consideration for others. So it really has nothing to do with me. It's not like I think that I'm so uniquely whatever that I need to hide it from others. It's more like I don't want to impose. So this is similar to what I was saying before about healthy shame or holy shame, where it's not that I'm so bad, it's that Hashem is so great. So also in interpersonal relationships, it's not that I think that you will be devastated if you find out that I have biological functions. It's that out of politeness to you, I'm not going to expose you to that. Right. Understand? It's a difference between is it about me or is it about you? If I'm trying to, let, let, let me change the, the, the example. Forget about uh, a shame right now. Let's talk about pride. Let's talk about pride, which is the opposite of shame. Um, pride can be like, let's say I dress nicely. 
But am I dressing nicely for me? Am I dressing nicely for you? It's, a, it's an interesting question. If I'm dressing nicely for me, meaning I want the attention, I want to be known as such a person. So that's the focus on, is on self. I'm dressing nicely because I want to show you that I respect the fact that we're meeting together and I want to be presentable and I want to make a pleasant presentation, just like if I were to tidy my office, if you were to come over and have a meeting with me, right? So I would put on a, a, a clean tie if you're coming to have a meeting with me, right? So again, it's not about me, it's about you. I'm trying to be polite. I'm trying to show consideration for you. It's not that I think there's anything that's wrong with me that needs to be fixed and certainly nothing that needs to be hidden. It's just, right. I'm trying to make you comfortable. So that's, that's called being polite. And, and there's you're, nothing wrong. You're with using that. a word often um, when describing it, things like something has to be hidden or not known or a secret. I don't know if you use the word secret, but I think I didn't use the word secret, but yeah, that's but hidden a couple words. of times. Yeah. Right. Word, right. Hidden a couple. So I think that's an important distinction. When I think back to what started this, this conversation, right? you're talking about two, two emails that I received from people that they sent anonymously. In other words, they wanted to hide their name. Here they were at least, they were writing the details. And let me just chime in here. The reason that they wrote an anonymous name wasn't because they were afraid of offending you. Correct. It wasn't about their concern for you. It was they felt they had to hide something for themselves. Correct. And that's where you, you, you start to see the hallmarks of the toxicity. In other words, polite people don't discuss certain things with others, even though everybody, there's a saying, everybody knows what happens after a, a chuppah, but polite people don't discuss it there's nothing shameful about it right it's just not something it's, it's private and maybe we should talk about the, the distinction between secrecy and privacy but again going back to the examples of these emails they didn't make it anonymous because they were afraid ellie nash is going to be so shocked by what i'm going to tell him that uh, i i want to shield him from it they weren't trying to shield you right they felt there was something repulsive within them that needed to be shielded correct right so maybe it is appropriate to explain the difference between privacy and secrecy because i think it matches well with uh with what you're saying so private so privacy i don't know where i heard this but i've been repeating it for a while so private is something that i share only with specific people sometimes it's myself, but I only share it with specific people. And a secret is something that I keep from specific people. So for example, someone may not want their wife to know about a detail, but they'd be perfectly comfortable meeting a stranger on the train and talking about this thing, because whatever this, this thing is that they're keeping hidden from their wife, but um, they won't, they don't want their wife, they don't, their wife, a specific person to know. So I think privacy and secrecy are, are polar opposites. One is about who do I share this with? For example, it's not a secret that you and I have a bank account. It's private how much is in it. It's not something you don't walk around announcing it. It's just not a, uh, 
a decent, it's not just, it's not a decent way of behaving. However, that private information is shared with accountants, with attorneys, with, um, you know, spouses, or et cetera, et cetera. Not a secret. Right. Well, Most like medical information. Private. Medical Correct. information is not a secret. Everyone has a medical condition, but it's private. And you, that, that's why there are HIPAA laws to protect, to protect the patient's, uh, patient's privacy. And you share their, this information with the people that you want to share it with. We'll, we'll try not to get political and talk about HIPAA. No, I'm kidding. I, I'm, I'm the most apolitical I'm guy in the world, Ellie. You couldn't even get me political. I'm the even second if you most. tried, but I don't want to challenge you. <laughs> I'm the second most. The, uh, and secrecy, on the other hand, is something that we keep from other people, so it promotes disconnection. It's in the furtherance of disconnection. This has to be disconnected from that person, Whereas something private is this is to be shared with that person. Right. And when you share something private with somebody that creates a bond. Correct. And it doesn't. And sometimes be- the sharing is just oneself. It's not something I share with oneself. One thing I noticed uh, just to, to add to that point is in, in both these emails, even though they kept it private, even though they kept their name hidden, there was an intensity to the email meaning it was clear that it was difficult in some way for them to write. And why, to me, why do, I th- well, why do I think it was difficult is because they were sharing some of these things with themselves for the first time to clearly write it in this way and to oh, identify I'm sure it. Yeah. I'm sure of it. That it was not, you weren't just the first person they told. It was probably the first time they saw those words in writing. About themselves, yeah. About that's, themselves. that's the way right. I felt, yeah. Yeah. So I interrupted yeah. you. So that, that's called keeping a secret from yourself. Correct. Which causes dissonance internally. There are parts of myself that I can't recognize. Parts of myself that I can't listen to. And even though it's clamoring to be heard, and I'm just sort of stuffing it down and saying, don't you dare speak up. I don't want to hear from you. Right. So what's what's coming up for me as you're speaking is that there are certain there's certain messages that um, definitely seemed to. Let's let's talk about the the first secret. I don't want to go to addiction because that has its own. Let's say the first secret, right? the secret that I was sexually abused. That was a secret that I carried from when I was eight years old until roughly 23. It was the first time I walked into a therapist's office. I was dealing with issues in my business and a friend recommended I speak to this therapist. I walked in. When I came to his office within 10 or 15 minutes, he says, Ali, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, were you sexually abused? And he was the first person I told. He was also the first person I asked. Who asked? The first I've heard person you I say told. that before. Yeah. The first person you I told said, was the first person who actually asked. Right. And, and the reason I say that also is because when I was 13 or 14, I got kicked out of school for getting into a fight with another student, a physical fight. And I guess something about the interaction or the way I explained what happened I made my teacher a little bit nervous. And he, in addition to kicking me out of school, also wanted me to go to a therapist. And I went to this therapist uh, every week for six months, maybe. Yeah. And the therapist didn't ask. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised, but I, I guess it was also a different time. 
right? We're talking probably 1998, 1999. I don't think a lot of people had the idea that these things didn't exist in a Jewish community. So what's what's even to ask? I'm going to ask a community, a kid from Crown Heights, whether he's sexually abused, certainly these things don't exist here. So, and that actually brings me back well to my point is there seem to be certain things or certain messages that I received as a child that um, supported me keeping it a secret. Maybe I'm imagining it, but it supported me keeping it a secret in, in some way. Maybe it was the fact that the word sex wasn't okay to say. So if I can't say sex, I'm never going to say the full sentence or the full term, sex abuse. But there was something there. There was some messaging that I felt I got that delivered the message that um, this secret is one worth keeping. And maybe I guess that's the point of, I don't know if I have a question there, but do you agree with me on that? Do you see that? And maybe that's why we're doing this event this evening, I guess. What, do I agree with what? Reformulate that That the message that, that that existed, right? I mean, I'm, I'm referring to something specific, right? I grew up in Crown Heights. I grew up in a certain, in, in a community, in the Chabad community. And I felt like I got this message home, the community, the larger community. Maybe it was the United States of America. You know, I, I know, for example, for men, it's not as if I was unique in that regard. The average male who's sexually abused doesn't talk about it till their 40s. But it certainly seemed like I got a lot of messaging that supported me keeping it a secret. I guess some was cultural, right? The wider, maybe New York specifically, maybe America specifically, and some was definitely religious as, as well. That seems to hey, keep this, keep this a secret. It's worth keeping it a secret. I think there are multiple factors, <laughs> and they're all true, and they were all part of your experience, and they continue to be part of many people's experiences. There are multiple factors causing people to experience the shame of a secret and, and a feeling of being compelled to, to keep that secret. Yeah. But so, you, you, you want to talk specifically about the religious uh, community? Not necessarily. No, more than messaging, but maybe, maybe we can I do. add to that. Because I think okay, so I, I would like to go there. Okay, so go ahead. Okay. You have a longer beard. Okay. <laughs> so... I think this is a very important issue for the religious community, the Jewish religious community to, uh, to examine. Obviously modesty, what we call modesty is a very important value and the sanctity of human sexuality is a very fundamental concept in Judaism. And we wanna protect that. There's no question. It's uh, to me. There is no question that that's a good thing, and it's something worth protecting. At the same time, if people don't know how to do it well, it can end up causing some un, unforeseen and undesired consequences, such as what you're describing as being part of your experience. Well, we're definitely in agreement on the uh, the part of keeping sexuality sacred, right? That that is a that's that's a value that important. And I think that, I mean, certainly it's a value within the religious community, and it's clear how a value such as that could 
very quickly turn into a poor messaging and shameful messaging around certain topics. Uh, but it's it's a value that I believe I, I think is important. I think it's consistent with uh, a lot of not only religious ideals, I believe, but also just seeing the recovery process of uh, from addiction and how part of that was learning to respect sexuality and the role it has and not to not to denigrate it like it's not meaningless like okay just watch porn and it makes no difference but also not to relegate it to the secret it's 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 more of a, a holy sacred um idea and i think that's the certainly what i found to be the healthiest approach for maintaining some uh sobriety in my life some periods of time away from pornography and other such uh, addictions. So let me describe something to you that I see as being a vicious cycle. And it's certainly not unique to religious people, but I think definitely being religious can exacerbate it. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm interested in. I mean, I'm interested in, in, in not just religion, but in Judaism. And uh, so that's, that's where I want to focus. So I want to describe to you a, a vicious cycle. And the place where I learned about this, or where I first saw it described very clearly as a formula, is in a book called Tanya, specifically in chapter 26 of Tanya. He describes this cycle very, very clearly. He says that the, uh, the negative force whose job it is to it causes resistance, let's call it that. Sometimes the, the most strategic thing it can do, if it's doing its job well, um, the, the most strategic thing that it can do is bring on feelings of inadequacy, spiritual, specifically religious and spiritual inadequacy. And that that causes pain. And the person naturally will feel discomfort. They don't want to be in pain. So they will look for relief, distraction, and being that they have a low opinion of themselves at the moment, they're not going to be that picky about the distraction. They're not holding themselves to a very high standard right now, after all. Right. Think about what I'm feeling shame about right now. And then they'll indulge, and the, dis the distraction, the indulgence, will provide some measure of relief. And then it's immediately followed, or if not immediately, definitely inevitably followed by a period of even greater self-loathing, which is greater pain, which requires greater distraction, which then brings on a greater indulgence, which brings on greater self-loathing, and lather, rinse, repeat, and it just keeps going. The, the cycle it's referring to in Tanya is not a specific area, right? We can say it with food, we can say it with sex, we can say it with uh, right. treating people unfairly. It doesn't specifically that it would be of a sexual nature. doesn't say specifically, no. But um, elsewhere in, uh, in the holy books, it's very clear that sexuality is the area where self-consciousness is most pronounced. I mean, we see that from the first story right. of sin, the story of Adam and Eve, where immediately when they, eat, they ate from the tree of knowledge and they gained self-awareness or self-consciousness, 
the it's first a sexual symptom, yeah. right? The first symptom of self-awareness was sexual shame. So we know that shame. Is it sexual shame because they wanted to cover their sexual organs? They made yeah, right. They made clothing because previously they were innocent like babies. There was nothing shameful to them. The Shalah says that before the sin of the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve would would look at their reproductive organs the same way you would look at the arm that you wrapped fillet on. Right. I mean, there was no shame whatsoever. It was just a body. Like body. an animal. Like we'd see an animal in the wild, the same thing. There's no. But but but, but not just an animal, because Adam and Eve were, were humans, and they were deep Correct. humans, and they were spiritual humans. They just didn't have that component of self-consciousness ingrained in their psyche yet. So it was a, it was a certain innocence. It wasn't coming from uh, being like a low-level creature. They were, they were geniuses, but... They, uh, they didn't have that level of self-awareness. So sexuality and self-consciousness and shame are all very intertwined in the story of humanity. And just going back to what I was saying, if there's anything that can bring a person low to a low level spiritually, it's self-awareness, crippling self-consciousness. So right. what I wanted to sort of bring up is this, this vicious cycle and talk about the fact that, ironically, people who, I have to be so careful how I say this, because it is certainly a case of not wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater. As we were saying five minutes ago, how there's something very precious about the Jewish view of sexuality that, that deserves to be preserved. And we, we don't want to lose right. that, God forbid. But there's definitely a, a component of, and, and, and I, and I want to just make it clear, I do not think this is inherent in the Torah's view of it, but I do think it is very common in the, in the imperfect human implementation of it through parents and educators and, and, and adolescents figuring out their own uh, sexual identity. At, at any rate, what I'm describing is the fact that a person with good intentions will actually undermine <laughs> their own ability to, um, to gain some level of sanctity in this area. And, and it's tragic. It's, it's, it's tragic to see somebody who hates it. They despise it. They don't want this as part of their lives. And that itself is a big part, if not the, ma the major part of uh, what's causing it to continue to be this, this uh, bedevilment in their life. Right. So when you're saying that's been my experience, certainly with, with pornography, and I wonder how much, um, I think there's a study out of Harvard uh, somebody, I didn't read it, but someone uh, said to me that there, there definitely was a correlation between heavy religious messaging, and actually I would put heavy Christian messaging as way more toxic in this area than heavy Jewish messaging, because the, the Christian view of a sexuality, meaning there, at its core is, you know, the, the priest doesn't get married. It's a, it's a base desire almost that doesn't need to be fulfilled by the purest amongst us. Whereas the Jewish messaging, there's, from what I understand, is a very different message. One of this is sacred, but that can get a little bit distorted. 
So anyway, in this study from Harvard, well, to use your about, terminology from from earlier. You know, the Jewish message is it's private. Therefore, you by sharing it, you are creating intimacy. As opposed to it's a shameful secret that nobody knows that I'm the only one who has these desires, and I have to make sure that no one should ever find out. Correct. So what the study said was that there, there seems to be a link between that type of religious messaging or religious upbringing and addiction to pornography. Not in the sense that someone can't get addicted to pornography otherwise, but in the sense that that's part of the cycle that you're talking about, right? Someone mm -hmm. acts out on it, for example, we're using this, the classic example, but of course it extends way beyond this. I know people who have described addiction to food in exactly the same way, all of the same, the same, uh, same dynamics. But like you said, there's something uh, about sex that is uniquely intertwined with shame. So we'll use that as the example, but it's not the only example. And then after acting out on a certain, uh, whatever it is that I'm trying to stay away from, after going there, that feeling of shame brings me right back to that, that same place. So interrupting that in some way, as, as you were saying with that cycle, interrupting that in some way is probably the most important thing one can do to relieve themselves of a lot of the power that the addiction has, right? Here I am doing something. The drive doesn't necessarily come from a shameful drive. It's a drive. It was there. But now there's this messaging that I bought into, cultural, religious, all wrapped together, maybe some familial. And, and blame it on the tree of knowledge. I'm saying right. there's even without, shame, right. even without culture, even without anybody giving you faulty messaging, there's a certain existential issue that is that is universal to the human condition, which comes it comes from the tree of knowledge. Correct. It's, it's, Correct. it's part of being human. Correct. But what we're trying to do, I guess, with this is can we offer a message? And if I can dissect what you said, so what you said earlier, it almost seems like there's two choices with sex. Either it's a secret that no one can talk about it, or it's strewn about haphazardly and everything goes. And maybe yeah. there's the, the, the other message, which is probably the healthiest for, uh, certainly healthiest for mankind, but certainly the healthiest when someone is dealing with shameful secrets or addiction, et cetera, is can I view this as something sacred? to be protected and shared with someone private. And if something happens that I don't want to happen, okay, so that's human nature and we deal with it, but we don't allow ourselves to enter that cycle of, of shame that you spoke about in chapter 26 of time. Right, exactly. And, and I, I just wanna speak to something that you mentioned very much in passing and uh, maybe ask you to amplify upon it. Obviously, we're, we're not oblivious to the fact that there are many, many people and there are movements who will specifically take the approach that you mentioned in passing, where the way they interrupt the shame cycle is just to tell you, hey, whatever you want to do is fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Right. And I'm not saying that. I don't think you're saying that, but I think it's important to address that approach because you know you have 
both extremes there everything is shameful and nothing is shameful and, exactly. and right okay so I, I think before we talk about the the middle path i think we should speak a little bit about the extremes i can talk even my own um my own experience with with healing uh, from um addiction to pornography which i see are some of the questions as well as a possible uh, um be be released and how that dovetails nicely with with this so first i did have that um incredible shame around it and my instinct was to throw it all away like okay it's fine it doesn't matter doesn't the, matter doesn't matter doesn't matter everything is fine everyone does it uh you look at the statistics so it be so where did the shame the shame was still playing a role it's very interesting the shame wasn't that i was doing it when my therapist brought it up yeah i watch pornography everyone watches porn all oh, look at this look at the data right? right it's the most watched right does anyone not shop on amazon well more people shop on amazon right there's more visitors to, to pornography so yes i had the things what i wasn't comfortable sharing what was a shameful secret that i was dependent on it that i couldn't stop meaning in that process of saying everything goes then it like it, it owned me in some way mm -hmm. so then i went to the other stream and I, okay i have to shut this down and i get into recovery and this became something that's I, I can't think a thought i can't go there i have to do everything to prevent um like I, I put it in, like I went somewhat to the other extreme. And uh, I wouldn't say it was so long ago, a few years ago, it dawned on me that sex in its natural form, sexuality in its natural form wants to be expressed in its purest form, in its original form, wants to be expressed with intimacy. And somewhere that gets interrupted. It wouldn't be very surprising in my case if it got interrupted. And the way I was introduced to sexuality, it was anything but intimate. It was forced. It was a secret. It was all of those things. So then sex and intimacy became two separate things, two separate tracks. And many people who are addicted to pornography will tell you that who they are intimate with, they have difficulty having sex with, and who they have sex with, they have difficulty having intimacy with. So it almost becomes two parallel tracks that, that run. So how would that express itself? By... Um, specifically, right, wanting a non, um, why is pornography almost more attractive than an actual person? Because there's no intimacy, it's a screen. There's zero intimacy here, so it's sexuality. And these same people with their own spouses, who there may be full attraction and everything else, but there's intimacy, there's a closeness, it's very difficult for them to engage in sexuality. I think some people call it, if you heard of the Madonna complex, the various descriptions yeah 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 that it's either they view a, a man either views a woman as right. the mother or a sex object right so this this idea and and, and i think that by the way i i wasn't gonna I, I this wasn't on the agenda for tonight but being that being getting married doesn't automatically cure people of their issues so there are plenty of people who are married and have these issues and their spouses are absolutely beside themselves. And mm -hmm. I don't want to, I think that that's worthy of a whole podcast unto itself. But I think it's important to note what you're saying is that when this toxic shame reaches this particular level of disorder, 
there's such a, a complete separation between sexuality and intimacy that um, it, it, I almost I see know. the two as two sides of the same coin, like going to that extreme of either it's got to be like in the closet tucked away or it's got to be like anything goes. They're two sides of the same coin. Right, right. The, the, the extreme secrecy and the extreme licentiousness, openness, anything goes, are two sides of the same coin. And neither of those sides have anything to do with intimacy and bonding and love. Both of those brought me shame in different ways. That's what I'm bringing up. One was the shame of the secret, right? That I'm, I'm engaging in this and this is something that should be non-existent, right? I, you know, as, as a teenager or yeshiva, I'm, I'm given all this messaging around how these are the biggest sins in the world. Then I say, okay, I can't maintain this. So I go to the other extreme. Now my shame is what? That it's controlling me, that I'm dependent on it, that once I go there, I can't stop thinking about it. And it's not that I'm doing it, it's that I can't stop doing it. And then I'm losing confidence in myself because I tell myself I want to stop. And three or four days later, I'm right back there. Sometimes three or four hours later, I'm right back there. So the shame is, it, it's getting me from one way or another, it's getting me. And then eventually trying to bring a place where, okay, can these two things be in harmony? harmony? Can sexuality and intimacy be in harmony? Where it's like, oh, it's a beautiful, um, sacred uh, idea or thing, only to be shared with my significant other in an intimate manner, right? And then this, I think this is the middle ground in more ways than one that we're talking about, because that is that's some of the criticism we can get for doing something like this, which I'm sure is is also the reason why it's important. Why is maybe not so much me, but why is Rabbi Tao talking on a podcast about sexuality, around shame, around secrets? Okay, if it needs to happen one-on-one, have these conversations one-on-one, why do we have to talk about these things? I think that's the obvious, that's, that's the obvious question. And, I, and the shocking I from, answer is because it is an absolute plague. I... I, I I don't want to frighten anybody and anyone who's not exposed to what I'm exposed to, I'm, I'm happy for you. But the degree to which people are struggling with these issues, and you can blame it on internet, I, I'm not interested. Honestly, to me, that's not even important right now. The, the, fact is the, the fact of the matter is the degree to which people are struggling with this issue and the degree to which it is causing them disorders in their intimate lives, marital problems, which then become parenting problems and children growing up without the, the support and the love and the stability that they need. It is an absolute crisis. It is an absolute crisis. And that's why we're talking about it publicly. Among other reasons as well. Right. Because I also believe that it is life-saving and there are plenty of people who are so ashamed, they're not going to reach out to anyone. So we're hoping that somebody will come across this video. And I have no doubt, Ellie, that right now somebody's either watching on Zoom or they'll watch later uh, on, on YouTube. And they're sitting there full of absolute self-loathing, hating themselves, feeling so alone, so isolated, 
so separate from everyone in their life and separate from from their own maker and if if they can just see us talking and feel that there's a place for them in this world and there's redemption and there's a future and there's <laughs> there, there's hope and there's a life then i consider pikuach nefesh to put this it's a life-saving measure to, to, to put out this this discussion on a public forum can i challenge it just a little bit yeah be my guest would you not if it wasn't a life-saving measure if it wasn't that extreme but it was something important is there's is there some validity in demonstrating um handling the topic of sexuality with some with a measure of uh for both sides right we spoke about the two extremes but handling the topic with some measure of discretion and class for lack of a better word i hope that we are dealing with it right now with this no meaning independent of the emergency independent of the emergency is it just to have the conversation meaning how did why, why am i saying this because part of how we got to this emergency i, I know some people will, will like to blame it on the on the internet but it's not only the internet the part of how we we got to this emergency is by there being message heavy messaging amongst other things right you spoke about this is human nature starting from uh the the uh first person first couple but part of it is this messaging where sexuality is one or the other right it seems to be the only the only two messages one hears so is there value independent of oh the I, hear, I hear what you're saying extreme situation is there value yeah. just in demonstrating a way of talking about these subjects yeah. and hopefully we're doing it with some discretion in some class some right. uh, attending to it as something sacred but not as something that needs to be kept secret mm -hmm. i hear what you're saying in other words there's so much content available out there that will tell you there are no limits everything goes there's no such thing as shame just get over it there's plenty of that messaging Correct. And there's also plenty of messaging that'll tell you that this is something shameful and to be kept kept secret. But where is a sane voice to be found that will offer a way, a, a, a manageable and, and wholesome way forward in this area? You're saying it's a rarity that it's a rarity to be able to hear people talking in this way so maybe there's there's in, there's value just in putting out this conversation with this tone correct and the fact that there's an emergency right as you say there are many 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 people right. of all shapes and colors and sizes who who struggle in this area and or who know someone who struggles in this area and you know we speak about shame i've had women email me or, or message me uh, um, sharing with me the shame they have that their husband struggles in this area that's what i was right? talking and who about. can they talk to about I, right I, I was touching upon that earlier we kind of drifted away from it right i want to focus strictly on, shame, on the shame that. that they felt because okay, ali i want to tell you something i don't know who's watching this but i can tell you something funny it's not funny it's it's tragic it's heartbreaking the whole subject is tragic and heartbreaking but i can tell you something peculiar about people who call me about um these issues 
I don't know about your experience, but my experience is that if somebody will call me about somebody who is probably what we would call a sex addict, 80% of those calls are from the spouse. Right. Um, is that my experience? I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, that's right. my experience. 80% of those calls for help are not from the identified addict, but rather from the spouse. Right. Who's, who's facing feelings of rage, of betrayal, of isolation, of loneliness, of inadequacy. Like, like yeah. we were saying before, I, I, I'm not good enough. And, and maybe they've even been told by people they've confided in, well, if you do more to, uh, to keep his attention, to validate him, I, 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 it always breaks my heart when I, when I hear, again, I don't want it to seem like this is, this is always gender specific, but very often it is a woman who's calling about a husband who's very uh, immersed in these things, and she feels very inadequate. And she's even been told by some people that she's confided in that really ultimately it's her, that if she were more this or more that, he wouldn't be an addict, which to me is right. patently ridiculous. But I, I, I think if, <laughs> if the demographic who watches this video is similar to the demographic of people who reach out to me, what I'm saying is, I bet you it's possible there's a lot of spouses watching this video right now possible and i think although i hadn't planned on it but it came up a little while ago I, I i think it's worthy to to speak about because i i i there's such a you talk about shame talk about shame the internalized shame the the the, the intimate wound of being betrayed in that way and that if i were only this or if i or if i were only that i wouldn't be worthy of rejection my spouse would have a story. Yeah. I'll tell a personal story. So uh, one of the things that when I was steeped in addiction, it was a video I came across. Um, I haven't seen it in years, but I'll never forget it. Uh, it was a video I came across on YouTube where um, I think it was titled something like why I stopped um, being filmed in porn videos or something like that. Right? And a woman was explaining why she, why she left the industry. And she said that uh, she, she was in the industry for years. She was in a committed relationship. And she one day walked in on her boyfriend viewing pornography. And she said, until that moment, she thought, I'm more attractive than the other, than the other woman. That's why other people watch me. And here you have, right? And here you have one person who I'm choosing to actually be with me in a, in a real way. Not for the money. I, I really love him. And she says, and I walk in, I see him watching pornography. So then she said it was at that moment that I realized that there's something much deeper going on here and that many people are using the pornography. And this is some of what I'm sharing earlier, specifically as a way to avoid any intimacy. So it has nothing to do with attraction or wow. not attraction. It has to do with, it has to, it has to do with avoiding what, what we talked about earlier, with natural... We, We've discussed this be before. Expressed. We, you and I, have discussed this topic many times. I've never heard that from you before. 
That is incredibly powerful. When I saw this, it was very powerful for me. When I saw this, this was right around the time that I was coming to terms with my own addiction and starting to talk to a therapist about it. And I saw this film or this interview and I've never gone to look for it again because I don't have a good, healthy way of looking for it and I'm bumping into the wrong <laughs> it's thing. It's not a kind of thing you want to Google for. <laughs> How do you write? How do I search? So I've never gone to look for it again. I've never gone to look and, for it and again. And nobody out there needs to Google it. You heard the bottom line. <laughs> Ellie Nash told you the takeaway. You don't need to, you don't need to look for it. Correct. So <laughs> the, um, that, that message to me, I remember hitting me hard and saying like, wow, there's something else going on here. It's not just, it's, it's not just a sexual drive. There's something else that this is being used for. And it allowed me to peel much deeper. And maybe I'm tempted to go into some of that subject because we're talking heavily about pornography and someone asked the question, you know, how can I, how can I get free from it? Or how can one get free from it? I think it's, it's useful to um, maybe talk about it unless you want to, before we go in there, because that's a whole conversation in its own right, do you want to share some other thoughts on, on what we're talking about here around the spouse? And- I, I want to continue this. Again, this is not where I thought we were going to go, but I think it's really, really important. I don't think our conversations ever go where we think it's No, going. they never do. <laughs> Mandel Futafas said there are two Fabrengens, the Fabrengen you plan and the Fabrengen that actually happens. And then so- the, there's a third. Uh-huh. And the Fabrengen people say, <laughs> say happen. <laughs> <laughs> so one one point i think needs to be repeated is that somebody in a relationship with somebody else who's struggling in these areas as hard as this is to accept and maybe it's no consolation but at least cognitively you may be able to wrap your mind around this this is the very opposite of intimacy and It doesn't make it feel like less of a rejection or less of a betrayal, but um, I think for, for quote unquote normal people or people who are experiencing their sexuality in a normal way, it's, it's impossible not to equate the two. And I think it needs to be understood that, um, I mean, your example was a, such a powerful example of the fact that it's not about you aren't desirable enough. It's not about that you haven't done something or, or something you should have done more or less. Or sometimes they think if I would have been tougher and meaner and made you know, more ultimatums, or if I would have been sweeter and more, uh, and, and, uh, more attractive, or if I would have done this or would have done that. And at the end of the day, what the person's looking for is not something that you would want as another human being to be the source of. What they're looking for is, to use a cliche term, the avoidance of intimacy. The avoidance of intimacy. And I I think I, I think for someone who's in a relationship with someone who's struggling in these areas, it's almost impossible to, to, to wrap your head around. It's like, well, why does that person want intimacy elsewhere? And the answer is no, it's not that they're looking for intimacy elsewhere. They're looking for anything but intimacy. 
which is why they can't bond properly with their with their spouse it's what what my sponsor tells me all the time he reminds me over and over and over he says sexual addiction is an intimacy disorder intimacy disorder an intimacy disorder all the time repeats this over and over and what you're saying matches well with uh his message so that that's one thing i think another thing that um that emerges from this from this uh insight or from this realization is you know people are asking i see in the q a how do you avoid it how do you get away from it and you know there's a there's a big unspoken part of this which is not about how do you get away from this bad thing okay fine so you'll get away from it but let's say even you're free from this negative distraction in your life how do you become open and available to the real intimacy that a human being was designed by god to seek out so there's it, it, go away from bad and do good so even let's say you were able to get away from the pornography are you able <laughs> to experience intimacy with a human being and that's a whole other discussion that people aren't really prepared to have they want to talk about the this demon okay we could talk about that but i don't think you could you can have a a, a productive discussion about that in a vacuum devoid of the discussion of well well what's the real thing that this is substituting what's the real thing that this is blocking off and getting in the way of i often find myself sharing this idea with people who are in recovery from addiction have already begun to um, learn to live a life free of pornography and if someone asked a, a question the way they worded it kind of you know i mean i um, is pornography something i can ever get out of right so like the way they worded it there, there was a time in my life when i watched pornography every day then there was a time in my life where I watched pornography every couple of weeks and every week, and I'm sorry, then every month, then every few months. And then it got longer, the times between got longer and longer and longer, right? Till it became years. But it's not about if, if I watch tomorrow, that suddenly, okay, everything is the, the, the five or so years that I didn't watch, like, that, that's nothing that's meaningless. I didn't get out of pornography. So I, when we think about it in those ways, it's one reason in addiction, they say one day at a time, it becomes this feat that's very difficult to accomplish. No one's saying like, you're never going to drink wine again in your whole life. If any addict thinks like that, there's no, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. Cause you start thinking of the most stressful moments of your life. And this was your companion. This was your friend. This was your this was like the, 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 the wine, the alcohol was something that got this person through. So now you're trying to get to a place where you're not having such intense 
down so someone doesn't have to go there, but not thinking in terms of lifetimes or you know decades. It's one day at a time. Today, my intention is to stay away from pornography. And tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll do the same thing all over again. And if God forbid I slip one day, that's that day. And the next day I wake up with the same intention as 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 the prior day. I think going in with that mindset is one that can get people in there. But before I went to that, I was talking about the fact that we're speaking about shame, we're speaking about secrets, but I don't want to pretend that, okay, so someone is in this situation, they have this secret for a long time, this person who emailed me, and suddenly he shares it with me, we get on the call, the shame is gone, 20%. Then he shares his first name with me, now it's at 40%, he shares his full name and his address, and now it's at 100%, the secret's gone. Not exactly. Not exactly. And I can say that for my case, there was a, a toxic level of shame that was destroying me when I wasn't talking about it. And there was nothing I can do to, 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 to make it better. And once I started talking about it, now there was the potential to start healing it, but it didn't go away in one day just because we start, we start just because we start talking about it. And I did want to, just in case we're over focusing on secrets and someone here is coming feeling that shame. And they're saying, but I don't have that secret anymore. I've already spoken. Why do I still feel the shame? It takes longer than just sharing the secret. The secret makes it impossible to. We have, have you heard the saying? I don't know where it comes from, Herb Chase. You can't save your tuchus and your face on the same day. I think you're on mute. I think you're on mute. Do I have to unmute? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard that saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what it means, uh, you know, for those who haven't heard it before, is that, and the way you're using it especially, is to remain healthy. The process of maintaining good spiritual health is going to require continual embracing of, hum of humility. And uh, you know, as soon as, as the pride gets in the way and the, the, the sense of you know, terminal uniqueness and somehow I'm different or my story is different, then uh, things start to unravel. I mean, I, I said this earlier, but I, I'm going to say it again in a little bit different terms. You know, I was speaking before about... The, 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 the guilt cycle where a person feels self-loathing and then they indulge in pleasure in order to cover up, to distract themselves from that pain. Sometimes the pain is not even guilt. Sometimes the pain is just the pain of being in existence separate from God. Which, which pain specifically? the pain that we're seeking to numb right meaning it's unavoidable it's 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 an existential fact that we are created beings and as created beings we are we are the creation not the creator and hold on though but god is all oneness and if he's oneness how can there be a me and a him and that puts us in a very unusual predicament and it feels funny to be a something we should be at one with the everything. And that itself can be 
the, the discomfort that we're seeking to numb. And, and that's why often we talk about in recovery that the, the ultimate solution is a vital spiritual experience and a relationship with a higher power, because really, what is the addiction an attempt to, to numb? It's the, the, the pain of, of separation from God. So if a person has religious-based shame, obviously that's an even more acute, uh, exacerbated feeling of separation from God. But what I'm saying is, even when a person is a tzaddik, even when he's holy and he's doing good things, there still can be a sense of existential pain that would that could drive someone to self-medicate through through numbing behaviors, and that's where um, constant humility and 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 surrender play a, play a role, because as as soon as that that self consciousness creeps back in, that sense of separation, that sense of ego. It can really, it, it can scream out for, for numbing. It's, it's, it's enough of a, an interruption. It's enough of a gnawing feeling that will scream out to be numbed. And if it becomes aggravating enough, who knows what a person will do to distract themselves from it. And then once they do, if they're entering that cycle that you spoke about earlier. And, and from there, it's off to the race. Yeah, because then my selfhood becomes even more shameful. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, so, so what is the, the practical recommendation for someone struggling with debilitating shame? I think we, we kind of spoke about the first part, which maybe if I can just say it succinctly, is find someone safe to share the secret with. Doesn't mean to get from the rooftop and, and blear it. Right? I didn't start by talking about my porn addiction on the TED stage. I started in a therapist's office, who was a therapist I knew for five years, and there was certain safety, and this was something risky for me that I was talking about it. And once I got to the point that I was able to release some of that shame with him, then it became... ...so forth, right? But... That seems to be a good first step for someone who's who's struggling with with shame. Yeah. What's beyond that? Well, you know, we've been kind of alluding to it, but we haven't said it clearly. We have to adopt a healthy definition of human sexuality and of humanity. We have to adopt a, a healthy working definition. So we will say um, humanity because this is more broad than sexuality for sure. Sexuality is the is the chief symptom of self-awareness, like I was talking right. about before, the story of Adam and Eve. But it's really about self-awareness, it's about self-consciousness, it's about, about what am I as an existence. It, it's deep stuff. It's deep stuff. And it's and it's 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 universal, it's ubiquitous, it's the human condition. It's, it's but there's really, something interesting you're saying. You're saying the human condition is shame. Yes. So it almost becomes, if the human condition is shame, the... the, uh, the well, Ellie, can I ask you a question? Does the, the pain chair, is a... Does the chair have self-consciousness? No. No. Because it has no consciousness. Right. So that's, but, that's, human, right, that's but the saying, human condition. The human condition is shame. The fear... What is shame? The fear 
of not being worthy of connection. Right. What is the area we can most connect on? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's the Irish. Our shame. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So, so the, the thing that really you and I could bond most, you know, we could really, really <laughs> confide <laughs> in each other and really become bonded and trusting each other and, and really validating each other is the fact that we both will never tell each other that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So the, I, in, in some way, right, it's been, I guess in my life, it's, it's been somewhat of my story, right? That I have this secret. The secret is, let's talk about the, the, we're talking about pornography, the sexual shame. So I have this secret. I begin to talk to a therapist. The first recommendation from my therapist is let me introduce you to another one of my clients who has the same problem. Over lunch with him, we connect, <laughs> right? So there's a connection that's formed because of the fact that I have this problem. He introduces me to a group, a 12-step group, and now I'm going to that 12-step group and some of my best friends and closest relationships are formed over there. And then beyond that, I begin to speak about this, share about this, and it becomes an additional source of connection that I have with many people, where someone who I don't know, a stranger, is listening to Chase and I speak and decides that he's going to make an email address to talk with me, and that becomes a connection. I wouldn't recognize him if I passed him on the street, but um, some of, we had very intimate conversations together. The yeah. irony. Yeah. The irony. So that's the solution. We've, that's, that's the solution. The solution is in the shame. Well, the, the problem is always the solution. Any good answer, any authentic answer is a repurposing of the original question. That's how Jewish learning works. That's why the bigger the question, the better the answer. Explain. The, 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 you know, if uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak a little bit uh, rabbinic for a second. There's a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylonian Talmud. And if there's ever a dispute between them, meaning they come to different conclusions about the law, the accepted practice for the millennia has been that we rule according to the Babylonian Talmud. Does they argue more? Well, oh, do they argue more? Yes. No, is it, is it because they argue more that that's the accepted because the Babylonian Talmud style is much more convoluted with a lot, a lot more dialectic, you know, point, counterpoint, refutation, right. counter-refutation. So therefore, its conclusions are seen as more decisive. And to bring that back to here, what we're talking about? So anytime you have a problem, the, the real resolution of the problem is not to get rid of the problem, bury the problem, or figure out some smart way how it's, oh, don't worry, you can, you can ignore it. No, it's to identify how the bigger the problem, the bigger the potential there is to get some productivity out of it. 
and that the whole right. so he's saying over here the fact that there's this problem that they're wrestling with in the babylonian talmud is exactly what gives it the strength that's more forceful and more impactful than the jerusalem talmud right so i'll bring that to here yeah when i'm faced with a challenge oftentimes i'll say i <laughs> i got over my porn addiction i got over i i i uh you know, I'm no longer dependent on porn the way I used to be. I can certainly tackle this, whatever this is. Right? So it was the problem that had me feeling intense shame, intense unworthiness, intense inadequacy, and is probably a, a larger storehold of confidence than anything else in my life. Yeah. And, and, and even deeper than that, I would say that the thing, that caused you the most isolation has become the source of meaningful human relationships. Okay, so I think if I'm, I'm thinking, if I was listening to this, because oftentimes what I like putting out there is what I would have liked to hear when I was in the place of the people that I think I'm speaking to now. Right. So, so paint the picture, I, Ellie, paint the picture, the guy who's sitting here right now watching this or the man or the woman who's watching this right now with headphones on, God forbid anyone should know with their hand ready to, you know, click to some other browser tab that God forbid anyone should see what they're watching, right? Probably even more shameful than the schmutz that the, right, that God forbid anyone should know. It's like the people who are Correct. more embarrassed to walk into a 12-step meeting than, than into, into a bar. crack house, right? But <laughs> right. So paint the picture. Describe the feeling right now, the person who is in crisis and who's watching this and who's desperate. Go ahead. Just describe it. Right. So when I think about where I was, the oftentimes, when, was, when did the demoralization completely set in? was after I'd made a commitment to, so the cycle would start, right? I do something for whatever reason, some discomfort, some boredom, some success, something goes well, and I'm feeling good and I don't know what to do with these feelings. This brings me back to baseline, whatever it is. Now I'm in the cycle, okay? I feel bad that I did this. So what I do, what I feel bad, I do more of it. And on, until it kind of reaches a, a breaking point and I say, I'm done. I'm never watching this again. Sometimes what I'm done looks like, and it has been in my case, taking a laptop, smashing it, and throwing it down a garbage chute in the building. Okay, I'm done, never watching this again. I'm never bringing a laptop to my house. I'm figuring out something else. Somehow, a week or two later, I'm back. That feeling the first time is so demoralizing. There was a commitment, a promise, I'm not gonna do it. There was an action and the the I, I use I like that word demoralization for it because it's so hopeless feeling. It's like this is never going to end. Could I have had more conviction than this? I'll tell you even a better story. I've shared this uh, on a number of occasions. I got an eye infection once, and when I went to the doctor, the doctor said that I have something called a corneal ulcer, and he didn't say this, but right away I said I have a corneal ulcer because I watch too much pornography. And he said it's sometimes resistant God to antibiotics. God is punishing me. I need to see you every single day for the next 14 days. Let's make appointments. And the reason is I need to see how it reacts to 
the antibiotics I give you, because if it doesn't respond well, it could cause blindness. When he said that I was convinced I am going blind in one eye because I've watched too much pornography. Not maybe, not a theory. In that moment, I felt it to the core of my being. So I walked out of that office, committed to never watch porn again. Two I, or three I days later. I would imagine later, you were highly motivated at that moment. Right. It's not even the word. It was just, there was nothing that was going to, in that moment, there was absolutely nothing that was going to get in the way. So moments like this, right? Leaving that doctor's office or smashing the laptop and throwing it down the garbage chute, I'm done. I'm not even bringing one back into my house. And then a week or two later, going back to that same place, there's a feeling of uselessness, of hopelessness, of inadequacy, of I'm never going, I, I can't figure anything, any, I won't be able to figure anything out. This is something that I said I'm not going to do, and here I am back again in this place. And that's, that's who I, would I even be on something like this? I'm probably a step before being on something like this, to be honest. If I had a destination, if I had an address, maybe I'm feeling like this. I'm probably not on something like this. Maybe I'm on the recording of something like this. Ali, <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about that, you know, the, the diagnosis, and by, by the way, I, I'm assuming, I mean, this was years ago, so your eyes are okay now. So, yes, two or three days later, I got, the doctor said, it's, it's reacting well. I don't have to see you tomorrow. I can see you in two, three days. And I didn't do 14 days like Clockwork, we set it up. Let's say I saw him five times over the next couple of weeks and it responded well. And when it responded well with the corneal also going, so did my conviction. And I was back to porn in a, in a week. And that's the cycle. That's exactly the cycle. It feels so different. You feel like different ways. Like here I'm, I'm committed. I'm never doing it. It's out with the trash. And I'm back to it a week later because I'm in the, the, the cycle you, you spoke about, chapter 26. Yep. Yep. So somebody's out there right now and they've experienced this ultimate letdown, this self-betrayal. Um, and they're feeling, what, disgusted with themselves, feeling hatred. There's a lot of self-hatred. There's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of um, the... The, the inadequacy, it's like, I, I can't do anything. Like I'm, I'm just useless. Even if there's an area of my life where I'm seeing something productive, there's like, if only this person knew how incapable I am of just functioning, like just a basic person. I've, my word doesn't mean anything. Nothing means anything, nothing. My commitments mean nothing. I'm just, there's a, there's a definitely an emptiness and a I, sense I, of yeah. um, utter loneliness. I think this is important for another reason to, to, to talk about this from a little bit different angle. And that is, you know, sometimes not too many of my colleagues, because I think most rabbis who are, who deal with people understand what we're talking about, at least on some level, at least on some level, they understand that the shame is part of the problem, but, but some people don't get it. And, and they'll, they'll ask me like, you know, Aren't you afraid, for instance, people ask me, aren't you afraid you're normalizing this? You're causing people to take it more lightly. And shouldn't you rather, you know, put the fear of God into them, tell them how bad it is? And my response is that they know how bad it is. It's not that 
they didn't learn in Reish's Chochma about the Gehenim of Zerah Levatola. And, and all of these things are true. We know they're true. That's not the issue here. The issue is, my question is, do you want results? Do you want results? I'm saying to, to someone who's asking me or making a religious argument about, are, you, are we, God forbid, speaking about these matters in a cavalier way? And what I'm, what I, my response is, do you want results? Do you want more of this behavior or less of it? If you're legitimately on the side of Torah, which doesn't, Torah doesn't like these behaviors. We know that. God frowns upon this, okay? We know that this is undesirable. So if you really think that it's undesirable, you, you should want less of it. What if I were to tell you that talking about this in a way that exacerbates people's religious shame of surrounding it causes more of it? Right. Causes more of it. So then <laughs> what do you want? You want to be able to talk about how bad it is? Or do you want there to be less of it in the world and in people's lives? Right. Right. What's, what's interesting is that I'm at a place now where I have much less shame, much less fear, much less fear of punishment or any of these other things. If I got a corneal ulcer today, even if I went back somehow to, to watching porn on a regular basis, the thought wouldn't cross my mind that this is here as a punishment from God. It's no longer my relationship with, with, with God. However, um, that, like I said, kept me in it. And then the opposite messaging of, it's okay. You did it for certain reasons. Find, instead of asking, you know, uh, Gabor Mate says, uh, a famous addiction, uh, author on addiction. Instead of asking why the addiction, ask why the pain. And he has a method called compassion inquiry. It's almost like, instead of asking what's wrong with you, uh, what's wrong with you that you watch porn? Ask what's right with you that you watch porn? What's right? What's right about the porn? Well, what's right about it is that when I'm feeling lonely and depressed and anxious, the porn soothes that. Oh, great. Do you want me to give you a better, a better uh, technique than porn for loneliness and anxiety and everything else? It'll work and you won't have the, the shame and you won't have the negative side effects. And here are some things I can recommend. For example, uh, a meeting, right? A 12-step meeting is much is, is much a much better and long-term cure for loneliness than is watching porn. So I'm I'm not sitting here anymore with I'm a terrible person that who's gonna lose my eyesight if I watch porn. And when I believe that, what did I do? I stopped for a period and I went right back to it. Instead, I'm like, hey, there's this problem that porn was solving for me, and I found a better method. So now it comes up. Okay, so loneliness, I know what to deal with it. Is porn an option? It's certainly an option. It's not a good option anymore. It doesn't have to be this, this massive um, monster hanging over my head. And when it was, it didn't work. But I do want to dig in on that because I wonder if there's a difference between, let's say, someone who's addicted to pornography, who's kind of crossed that threshold, or someone who's not. And this, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I heard this from, I'm, I'm sensitive to quote them, but I, I think it was from Guard Your Eyes that I heard this concept. So Guard Your Eyes is an organization that helps people with pornography, with, who struggle with pornography. And if I recall what they told me, and maybe they still do this or don't, 
when someone comes into them, the first thing they want to understand is what, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with someone who struggles with this from time to time? Whatever, you know, every so often, a Yeshiva Bachar who ends up in this place and is looking for a little bit of strength to not go there? Or are we dealing with someone who's in that spiral, in the addiction spiral? And if I recall correctly, the messaging is somewhat different. So the messaging to someone, and I'm not saying this is right, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking for your input on it, what you think about this. The messaging to someone who hasn't crossed a certain threshold is a little bit stronger. And saying, do you, you understand the sins, you understand the, the, the spiritual calamity that's being created by you engaging in this behavior, do you understand the, the risks you're taking spiritually and physically, and we can talk about some of the physical symptoms of it. Right? I think uh, the Gemara says, right, the, the breath gets bad and like teeth fall out and whatever, right? There's some physical symptoms that are connected to these things also. So they'll start sending some of those messaging and it'll be effective. But for the addict, it's counterproductive. It does exactly the opposite. So the messaging has to be somewhat different. Taylor, do you, does that sound... Does that sound right? I mean, is there is there room ever for this tough, hard-nosed approach? Never make categorical statements. That's that's a never say never. Everybody. Yeah, never say never. Are there people who respond well to the fire and brimstone? I'm sh I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. That's not the question. The question is, what if you? are such a person who knows the fire and brimstone and you keep on experiencing these terribly demoralizing, shocking, baffling self-betrayals. And it's like, what else do I need? What motivation am I lacking here? What clarity am I lacking? Why am I back here again? So is it that we need to scare you more? Is it that we need to impress upon you the destruction that you are causing even more? Is, is, is that what's lacking? Ask yourself. But you're saying that message has already been sent. I mean, those things exist. People can read those books. It's very clear what it says. If someone has gone through the system of yeshiva, they've heard enough of those that if that, did it, if that hasn't done the job, doubling down on it is not going to do it. If anything, it's going to send you in the opposite direction. Right. Well, that's that. That's what I'm saying. That do you do we think that we haven't been articulate enough in describing how bad it is? Maybe there's somebody. Maybe there's a tinik shenishba, somebody who was raised completely outside of <laughs> Judaism, somebody who was raised completely outside of morality, and they have no clue. Okay, so we got to clue them in. We got to <laughs> tell them how bad it is. But what about the guy who knows how bad it is? And be precisely because he knows how bad it is, every fall is accompanied by deep, deep shame and self-hatred, which ultimately brings him back to the escape, the numbing, the distraction of more of the same stuff that he's ashamed of. So... 
rather than asking me, is there a place for more fire and brimstone? Because for that, sure, there's a place for it. How big of a place? How many people? I don't know. That's not, that's not my concern. Right. Ask me instead, what if you're a person? What if you're watching this now and you know all the fire and brimstone and you're still coming back to these um, terrible moments of shocking self-betrayal? Is it, do you really honestly believe that you just need more hellfire? You need more fear of God? Or is it perhaps that you need a different approach altogether? And is, is, it, is, is the other approach, if someone's listening to this, is, okay, I'm going to lie to someone to make them feel a little bit better about the situation? No, God forbid, we'd never lie to anybody. And if anyone would push me to the wall and say, how bad is this sin? I wouldn't lie to them. It's terrible. It's, you want to you know how bad it is? I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, as far as polluting someone's soul, as far as causing numbness to everything that's good and, and holy, there's nothing more devastating than these types of sins. It's absolutely a soul killer. But it's precisely because this stuff is so devastating that driving the point home is such an ill-advised idea. Again, let me, let me repeat something I've said. If I really hate this stuff, which supposedly or ostensibly I should, because I, we know that Hashem hates this stuff. We know that. When, when Balaam wanted to trip up the Jews, he told Balak, there's a whole story in the book of Numbers. He said, look, if you really want to get the, the Jews on God's bad side, trip them up with promiscuity, because the God of the Jews hates lewdness. He hates it, okay? So you're going to really push me to the wall and say, how bad is this stuff? The worst, the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. Precisely because this stuff is so bad, I'd like to see less of it in the world. I'd like to see less of it in people's lives. And if merely doubling down, like you're calling it, on the severity of it is actually causing a cycle that's making more of it, then I think we have to be humble enough to stop and back away and say, hold on a second. Is there another approach that's going to be more productive? Like, if you're not making money, but that, maybe but that, you want to but that, but that approach has to be true. Hmm? But that approach has to be speak. Of course, truth. it has to be true. So, so what is the truth that we're saying? We're not, we're just not paying attention to the fire and brimstone, or we're saying. I, I think that part of the messaging, when I think about it, it's not that I need to be reminded now of how much it messes me up. I don't even think of it in terms of um, a punishment. Like it's in and of itself. If I go there, um, I'm numb. I'm disconnected. I, I'm not feeling good. Um, um, it the the consequences, you know, embedded in the action. There's nothing to. Uh, I, I don't need, you know, I don't need a, a, an outside force. Well, I don't separate you know, those two things, Ellie. I don't separate. Is it one and the same? Because yeah, it doesn't have to be a lightning bolt from the sky. <laughs> Divine punishment could be just a feeling of loneliness and shame and disconnectedness. So it doesn't have to be a lightning bolt from the sky. Right. You ate too much and you feel full. There's no, uh, 
We're going to give a punishment to this guy. He's going to gain six pounds. What I'm saying is everybody knows the negative consequences. Right. Right. And in this particular case. But it's not irredeemable is one of the things. I think that's the separation. That, that was a distinction for me. There was something about it is that this sin is somehow in a special category. Right. That can't really be forgiven. Some it's compared to murder or whatever else, it can't right. really be forgiven. And as a result, there's there's no redemption for it. There's right. nothing and to do. That was no where I found. And therefore, I'm doomed. Yeah. If, oh, I if I were I'm doomed thief, anyway, keep going. If, so yeah, so live it up. If I were a thief, I would be redeemable. But this this is irredeemable. And, and, and that's what I'm telling you, you know, what we see from the story of Adam and Eve, that their first experience with self-consciousness was sexual shame, and they wanted to make clothing to cover their reproductive organs. Sexuality and self-consciousness are so intertwined. They're so intertwined. So, you know, it's like the uniqueness, quote unquote, of this, of this sin. Where is that coming from? The uniqueness of it. Like, why is this so uniquely irredeemable? So uniquely um, beyond the pale? But so uniquely severe. Because, so what? Not to use the word irredeemable. We don't want to use that word. No, but the, the feeling is that it's irredeemable. Oh, right. The feeling is, yeah. Yeah. The feeling is, yeah. why does this feel so uniquely irredeemable? Oh, right. Okay. I didn't hear that word, feeling. Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't say the word, but that's right context here why does it feel so uniquely irredeemable why doesn't it feel like being a a, a thief why does it feel different the reason i think is that our sexuality is so tied up with our essence it's like right there that's right it's like a here so my whole sense of self my whole sense of self this is this is deeper this isn't just a behavior this isn't just what i do this is who i am This is my identity. I, I, I know a lot of people, I, I'm judging from the Q&A, and it's probably uh, um, representative of what people are thinking when they're watching this. They want more practical guidance. And, and here's the thing. <sighs> practical guidance, okay, maybe at the end we'll give 30 seconds uh, practical guidance. But if you've spent hundreds of hours trying to figure this thing out so just spend a couple more hours with me and ellie listening to another way of thinking about it you've already spent hundreds of sleepless nights thousands of sleepless nights trying to figure this thing out L slow down a second listen to another way of thinking about it think about it like this again you know if it were if if the if the if I were a thief, if I were a liar, if I were, uh, you know, uh, dishonest in business, all these things are, are, are shameful. They're all, uh, you know, the, none of these things are things that you would, you would brag about. But there's no question, there's a certain unique feeling of, of shame when it comes to anything that has to do with sexuality. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. Self-concept 
and sexual identity, according to Torah, are completely intertwined. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, they had no self-concept and they had no sexual identity. Those two things came on exactly at the same time, one being a symptom or a manifestation of the other. So, so what does it mean no sexual identity? Would they not have children? Of course, that's what, to be celibate is not to have no sexual identity. It's to be in flight from your sexual identity. No, to have children and to reproduce and to be married, and yet, it's nothing you think about so much. You know, it's like right. it's like breathing. There's nothing. You know, there, are there people who secretly go in the corner and, and take sips of breath? You know, they're breathing. Nobody has shame about the fact that they breathe. Although, when somebody feels really deep shame, they might hate themselves for even breathing the air of this planet. Right? If you hate yourself enough. I don't even deserve to breathe the same air as normal human beings, okay? But again, that comes from the sense of self-consciousness. That comes from the sense of, of hyper-awareness of one's ego. And generally, people don't automatically, by default, have shame about the fact that they breathe. Although they do have, def by default, automatically shame about their sexuality. Why? Because that's something that we equate, not just we equate it, it is, it is interlinked with, with self-awareness. That's why, and not to get into a whole other discussion, but you know, you 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 ask, you know, what, what's worse? To get beaten up or to be sexually abused? I was going to go there, actually, so I'm glad you Okay, did. so you know what? So then so let's do it, because... So, I mean, I've, I've made this point before, and actually, for myself, it's one of the things that's given me appreciation um, for the sacredness and unique um, connection to our identity that our sexuality holds. Because when I, when I heard people's stories, you know, for a while, I was doing a lot of work and speaking on child sex abuse, and oftentimes I'd hear people say something like, you know, I had a pretty good childhood. I wasn't sexually abused. You know, I, you know, I was never sexually abused. So everything was okay. Or someone would say, oh, I was sexually abused, right? Like, and so like, what is this? There's some like unique pain that sexual abuse has that nothing else has. Right. What, do you mean, right. Like, what about growing abused? up in poverty? What about growing up in a war right. zone? What, if, what about growing up with starvation? But being molested what about, is a like, whole example, different category. Or what about, or, or you know, you, you mentioned being beaten up, and uh, the answer is yes and no. And here's 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 what I came to, and tell me what you think. Is that suppose someone had a good childhood, okay? Normal, right? Nothing. Attentive parents, loving parents. On one occasion, for whatever reason, okay, their uncle's in the house and beats the kid up. 20 years later, you run into the kid, how's he doing? I think he'll be doing okay. As long as there's no physical, like a broken arm or something that hasn't recovered, there's this moment in childhood that's not pleasant, possibly traumatic, but by and large, you're going to see a healthy, well-adjusted person. They've had a good childhood and they had this one occasion of getting beaten up. Whereas in my experience, meeting people, it wasn't my, my experience, I was sexually abused tens of times, so it's not, my, that's not my experience, but in speaking to people, 
who had wonderful lives. They were good. And then one day jogging, for example, a woman is raped. Other than that, they had a charmed life. But suddenly, it's not the same if someone was beaten up once or if someone was raped once. There's a completely different person that you'll see sitting in, sitting in, in, in front of the person. So what I came to is that the effect is the same. Sustained psychological, emotional, physical abuse will get someone to pretty much the same place as sexual abuse. But there's something about sexual abuse that felt to me like it only takes one time. Literally only takes one time and the person can be scarred in a way that, that creates an unrecognizable person. There is no dilution of it, right? They say in certain things, if, if a parent, I, I, did a, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with, um, what was his name, Lazar Bloom, his name was a relationship therapist. He said that children, if you get it right a third of the time, something like I think it was a three to 10 times, you're present, you're attentive to the child, it's usually enough, they'll be okay. You'll have someone who's, who's well-adjusted. A parent doesn't have to be perfect for a child to be well-adjusted, but in the arena of sexuality, a parent has to be perfect, right? If a, if a parent, God forbid, sexually abuses a child one time, right. yeah, three and 10, you're not even saying nine and 10, you're not even saying that. There's no dilution of that experience where right. other experiences, and my, from, from what I've seen, can be diluted. And I think that's like, it touches to the essence, right? The essence can't be diluted. And when the, and when the essence is kind of affected, diluted. I do want to clarify that it's obviously not the essence essence, because it's possible to heal from it. But there's definitely a quality to it before it's healed. That's like uh, the, uh, the, the seed has been scratched, not the, not the branch, the seed has been scratched. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more that these things have a different way of affecting us. And if ever there were a window to the mystical, if ever there were a way to glimpse some of the things that Kabbalah and Chassidus say about, about our souls and our humanity, I think this is one of, this is a pretty, pretty compelling insight. Um, even someone who's not spiritually inclined, I think would have to be at least give pause to consider why sexuality has such a different place in our in our experience both of of trauma and of bonding i i've made that point during speeches when i was probably as disconnected as i as in my as this my my experience with Judaism hasn't been a straight line in either direction, right? There's been ups and downs. But at a period that I was most disconnected or felt most disconnected or was acting most disconnected, I um, made that point that I do not think it would be possible to understand the devastating nature of sexual abuse without looking at the spiritual dimension and the spiritual components that are played. It just doesn't make sense. There's no logical explanation to me that you can you, that, that you can offer for why someone who's sexually abused once will show physical um, trauma that you will not see from someone who one time, you know, was yelled at by a teacher or something like that. Not that it doesn't have an effect, of course it has an effect, but it sits almost as an isolated incident that needs to be solved. Right. Not that you see the shell of a human being 
sitting in front of you oftentimes from from one experience and you're like wow they talk I- about complex trauma where there's repeated traumas or micro traumas and yeah, the cptsd the, yeah. right the 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 the, uh, the cumulative effect of the, you know millions of paper cuts but there's something about a breach of our sexuality which is the, the there's a um there's a pasuk. Someone showed it to me. The Rebbe Rashab has a whole mimer. Chilo brisay b'shleimet. It's like you know the the pasuk. It's from. Him? It's Chilo from. Uh, we just had Yutes Kislev. So, right. Uh, What's in, the line? Uh, the the part of a shalom. Yeah. There's a uh, part of a shalom. We have. Uh, Maybe we have a book known hey. But there's a line in there, and someone said the Rebbe Rashab translates it like that. So the whole verse is Sholoch Yodov Bishlaimov Chilel Brisai. Right. So the so right. So he connected, which translates like I'll, I'll let you translate it to do a better job. Um, they sent out uh, their hands against your peace. They uh, they profaned your covenant or his covenant. Right. So the way he explained it, Urshab, is sent out his hands Bishlaimov against his like his completion mm. and what is that like he profaned his bris right that when our sexuality is touched it's like touching someone in their shlemas like in their in their essence that's why it's a, a sikh of river shop i can share it with you it was very interesting when i saw it and it was taught to me or we simon jacobson showed it to me and he said it can be read and understood as either you know, it's funny, it's either one of these things we're talking about, which is interesting tonight, is either a sexual transgression or sexual abuse. He says, like, when you read it, it's, it's clear that you can interpret either way. When that is touched, when the essence of someone is touched, either by themselves or by someone else, then it affects the essence of the being, of, of the person. He says, and that's why, and he goes on to say, that's why a different level of um tikkun of healing of uh, repair is needed for these types of uh transgressions but i'm using transgression both ways a personal transgression or a transgression against someone in this arena you know <laughs> when you, you when you're equating uh sexual transgression with sexual abuse i mean should it really be such a difficult concept you're not allowed to punch someone else in the face, you're not allowed to punch yourself in the face. I'm saying, according to halacha, according to Torah law, you're not allowed to harm someone else, you're not allowed to harm yourself. So you're not allowed to sexually abuse yourself either. And I'm, I'm not saying it to make people feel worse than they already do. What I'm saying is that, yes, it's a form of abuse, meaning it does harm. And where, and, and where does that harm reach like we're saying it reaches to the essence and that's part of what makes it so insidious because it's not just a part of me now that is that is um broken there's a there's a existential feeling of brokenness and when you're feeling that existentially broken obviously you're going to be desperate for some type of soothing, some type of relief, even if it's by 
indulging in the very thing that's causing the feeling of, of deep brokenness. And that's the cycle. That's the vicious cycle. And, 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 and I know maybe, you know, people are sitting out there in TV land and they're like, why are these guys talking for two hours about such deep spirituality and, and, and uh, identity and, and self-consciousness and shame? I, I think you, you, you want a list of, you know, five tips and tricks, like clickbait titles, do this, do that, you know, a little uh, short list of things to do, conquer your porn addiction. I'm going to say it straight up. This isn't a small matter. This is a big matter. It is all-consuming when a person when a person is being um, when a person is experiencing pain in this area, whether it was inflicted upon them or by themselves or a combination of the two, but when a person is, is experiencing pain in this area, what part of them hurts? It's not a part, it's all of them. It's all of them. And if something is hurting all of you, then the healing has to involve all of you. And the healing is not going to be compartmentalized. The healing is going to be holistic. The healing is going to be getting down deeper to your essence than you ever thought you ever were going to do. So to those who are asking, well, what's the solution? The solution is <laughs> the intimacy with yourself that you're in flight of and that many people have the luxury of avoiding their whole lives, you will be forced to confront and to encounter for your healing. The problem becomes the solution. The problem was you become divorced from your true self, fragmentation of yourself, of deep, your deepest self. The solution is this will force you to become whole, to be complete with yourself. And anything short of that is a temporary fix that will probably, God forbid, blow up even bigger than whatever it is that you were trying to fix beforehand. This is deep stuff. Um, you know, in terms of uh, what, what you were saying about the um, like so sexual transgression and transgression, I'm exploring these subjects. I'm not coming coming at it with the same religious conviction that you are, certainly. But the um, hearing it, it makes, it's making a lot of sense. So one of the things that I found very often with people who are sexually abused, and this was somewhat of my story, uh, because I was abused by a teenager. So for a long time, my story was like, maybe he didn't do it on purpose. Maybe he didn't know what he's doing. Maybe he stopped doing it afterwards. Like, how can I hold a teenager accountable and everything else? And at a certain point in time, you know, I don't know if it was uh, seeing a picture of a, a teenage kid <laughs> dressed in Hamas attire shooting a rocket that said, like, are you going to tell the guy on the other end of that rocket? Oh, don't like put your leg back on. It was a teenager who shot the rocket. Like, okay, everything is fine. I have to tell you mm -hmm. what happened. So that was one. But another part, and this I've shared with a lot of people who are struggling with, was I sexually abused or not? And I remember this one guy who I spoke to who, um, his father was very concerned, not a Jewish guy, his father was very concerned for whatever reason that he was going to become gay when he was older. So he taught him to, he showed him porn and he taught him how to 
uh, what to do with porn. So for him, he was at a very young age, five, six, seven years old. So he heard me talking about abuse and he shares his story with me. And he's like, was I sexually abused? Was my father teaching me? Was everything else? So I shared this with him. And since then I've shared it with many others. I said, maybe instead of saying like, was I sexually abused? Which is a confusing question. That's was your sexuality abused? Mm. Yeah, like when I go sexual abuse, I need a monster on the other end. Like who is the monster who sexually abused me? What's my sexuality abused? I said, let's say a five-year-old an eight-year-old, even a 12-year-old, walked into a room and there was porn playing. And how did it get there? Whatever, a lightning strike, okay? That's Nobody did two it, wires right. together. act of Nobody God, did like it. they say in insurance. Yeah. yeah. There, there it is, okay, there's porn. Oh, he doesn't have a monster to point to and say, this guy took me into a back closet and, and did with me as he pleased to gratify him sexually. So he does, so, so this person's not sexually abused. Or would you say objectively, that this friend of mine who I spoke about was introduced in sexuality, introduced to sexuality at too young an age, his mind couldn't comprehend it in a way that to this day doesn't make sense to him or to any therapist or anyone else he can, he, he, he can share this with. And as a result, his sexuality was certainly abused. It was not treated with the sacredness and um, specialness and care that it needed. And as a result, there's... Uh, there's effects. And of course, there's different levels of sexual abuse, both in terms of what you mentioned earlier, Chase, complex, did it happen? There is a difference with someone who is sexually abused one time or multiple times. Certainly, there is a difference between someone who is sexually abused in more horrible ways or less horrible ways. Of course, all of those things, um, all of those things play a role. But we can objectively say in certain situations, and it's a much easier conclusion to come to, was someone's sexuality abused? And that's, a, that's usually a very easy question to answer. And I guess if I'm looking back, right, taking a full circle to what you were saying, was my sexuality abused by myself? Right. And right? since spending you, hours and hours watching pornography, was my sexuality abused by me? And, and since you're, you're accusing me of having greater religious conviction than you, which I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure of, but... I play one on TV, so I will, I will say something that smacks of great religious conviction. If you're asking yourself, was any particular experience one in which my sexuality was abused, then you have to ask yourself, if you, if to define abuse, you have to define proper use. <laughs> so what's, <laughs> what's the proper use of sexuality? And, and the simple answer to take something so grandiose and try to put it into a, a, a sentence is sexuality is the, you know, the problem is the solution. It's the one thing that makes us feel separate from God. And it's the one thing that unites us with God. So the proper Great. use of sexuality is to feel oneness with God. And therefore, the answer would be, was my sexuality abused? Did it do anything other than make you feel one with God? Then on some level, even on a very subtle level, that's an abuse of your sexuality. And we can and we deserve to have really high standards in this area. Not because we're ashamed of ourselves, but rather because we value ourselves and we have really high standards for what 
sexuality should mean in our lives. And we have the goal, I'm speaking collectively for all of us, we do have the goal uh, with, at the same time, a, a certain gentleness and, and compassion with ourselves about our human failings. But yes, we do have the goal that all sexuality should be something that creates more God consciousness and less self-consciousness. So at the risk, we're seeing even in this conversation how easy it is like in our conversation to veer off and start sounding like fire and brimstone or veer off and start sounding like the um, everything is like everything goes right. It's like that the uh, like the, the wire is like the the line is so thin between this is so sacred. I, I thought about sharing this before or not. I, I haven't shared it publicly, so I'm afraid that I won't uh, be able to do it with the, as, that I haven't refined my way of saying it yet enough to, to the point that it's with discretion, but I think the point is important enough, so I'll risk it. So we, we spoke, I spoke about the, the, you know, the people who've reached out to me right at the beginning stage, right? That those, those, those emails, those anonymous emails, but I often get, I've been on this path for eight years and I'm sure I have much more to, I'm sure I have much more to learn from uh, people who've been on it for many more years. We're talking about something that's at our essence. It's obviously infinite in terms of the, uh, the perfection one can achieve in this arena. But one thing I do find that I stumbled on and that's almost uniform in people who start uh, the, this path of recovering from addiction is this shift. I used the term earlier, um, I, f- I forget the term we you, you use, like celibacy, right? It's this shift of almost like, okay, let me take this and throw it into the corner as far as possible. Okay, so I'm married, I need to, um, you know, bring it out from time to time for some sort of reproductive reasons or something else. So, okay, so I will, but it's comes in and out and it's not something, it's not a, uh, there's a, an anorexic quality almost to it, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm eating and I'm throwing it up, right? There's not this, well, what you described as this uh, unification or union with God or this connection, there's certainly not that feeling. There's this um, sexuality, which when I let out of the bag, destroyed me. And now I'm trying to get it back in the bag. And while I do have to let it out on occasion, um, in certain settings, I can't fully explore it or enjoy it or you know anything else. And on a number of occasions, I shared with others and I shared with um, and I, I I found it myself is that the goal in healing is not like to achieve, for lack of a better term, like worse sex. Like okay, so here's like. This guy's having this incredible sex, right? With all sorts of people and being promiscuous and what we spoke about, right? The everything goes. And here comes the uh, the new approach. The monk. Where, what? The, the monk, monk. Right. And no, so what we're talking about here and what I think the goal is, is an, an experience of sex that is better than any other. Physically, of better course. than any other. Of course. Certainly, yes. So that actually having, and this is what I tell people, that's why I was, 
that the, the goal, when I come into recovery, like now the way I see it, I'm not here to control my sexuality anymore. I'm here now and the goal and destination is to have the best sex life. Yeah, but that sounds terrible if people it don't sounds understand terrible. what it means. Right. It's right. It's right. And that's that, why that soundbite is the worst soundbite. <laughs> unless you listen to the two hours that came before it. Then you realize. So then, what's then you have saying? to. Ellie's saying that there's this thing that is part and parcel with my identity as a human being. It's imprinted in the human psyche since the time of the, the tree of knowledge. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. And yet we can't master it. We can't, we can't own it. When we try to control it, it consumes us. Ultimately, the only thing we can do is to surrender it's to talent. it as, as a divine power. To surrender to it as a divine power. It's bigger than me. I, if I'm going to try to control it, I'm going to be made a fool of every single time. And that's the demoralization that you're talking about. Here, right. I'm going to control it. And then, <laughs> what, a, what a sucker I was. To think right, and that. there's two ways to control it. Is one is I put it in the closet, right? Or uh, there's this um, movie on porn addiction I watch. It's called Thanks for Sharing. And uh, this guy says, emotions are like kids. You don't, want to, you don't want them in the trunk, but you don't want them driving the car either. <laughs> That's good. That's like, so it's kind of like, right? so it's like uh, sexuality, right? Is, yeah. yeah. Right. You don't want to put it in the trunk. But you don't want to drive in the car like everything goes wherever it wants to take me. It takes me. There's a certain parameters. The reason I said it is because the reason I brought that up, because I knew it was sensitive and I um, clarified in that way, is that it's kind of what you referred to earlier with the Sur Meirah and Asay Taiv, right? That what we're going here is not just like, okay, refrain, abstain, refrain, abstain, refrain, abstain. No, that's not what we're talking about. So we're talking about intimacy, greater intimacy, greater connection, greater love, you know, a, a, a deeper, a, a much deeper, I'm not talking about sex now, I'm talking about just in general, like the overall, we're not talking about, um, okay, I'm afraid of connection. So I'm going to sit here huddled in a corner with a few people who also have the same secret and share with them. In a meeting, if you walk in, what do you, what do you hear normally? A lot of laughter, right? A, a, a very pleasant atmosphere for the most part. You can have someone struggling, but warm embraces when you come in, loud talking, right? There's a, a very often uproarious laughter in, in meetings. And I, I know I was surprised by that. It's like, okay, I'm coming to this serious, dark, dingy corner. You know, and oftentimes that they are, right? They're often not, uh, they don't have good funding or funders. They don't do charity campaigns. <laughs> these places but what you do find by and large which is the attraction is you find people enjoying life you find people who are on the happier end of the spectrum not like i'm so miserable and maybe that's a better way of saying it you're not finding someone who's like oh i can't drink alcohol anymore poor me no you're saying the alcohol was good right it was good i enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun but it always had the side effects and always had the risks. And now I found a way to have more fun with less, with less risks. And I'm much happier than I ever was. I didn't go from poor me, I can't have a good life. So I had to cut out all these things and I become a monk, just the opposite. And I think the same is true with sexuality. And that's why I think the fire and brimstone isn't necessary. You are not promoting a lifestyle with any of these things. And I think the same is true with, um, 
probably what I, th I think I've heard you speak about that just in terms of Orthodox Judaism and Hasidus and everything else. About, poor me, I have to live this lifestyle. No, I get to live this lifestyle, right? It's, that's same essay. It's not poor Look, me. I'm addicted if, to if porn. If we understand that I everything enjoy it. in this world is the way that it is because it is the manifestation of a spiritual paradigm, then spiritual health is the source of all other health, physical, emotional, social. So it, it's not possible that we would do something that would be morally better and it would cause dysfunction. And I'll flip that statement as well and say, if something's causing dysfunction, maybe it's not really as moral as you think. Even though right. you might, might think that's what Toyota wants you to do, but maybe actually the fact that it's causing so much dysfunction is you need to get a better idea of what Toyota would actually guide you to do. And I think that's happening a lot is that well, with well-intending people, earnest, sincere people are trying to do the right thing and causing themselves not only more emotional pain, but more religious failure by trying to do something that they believe their religion is compelling them to do. So just to spell this out, because I know this is very confusing, uh, again, bottom line, we want people to be free from all types of misuse of human sexuality, and we want people to be free to engage in God's intended purpose for sexuality. And when it's done in that way, there's less shame, less guilt, and a, a, a deeper experience on all levels, physical, spiritual, and emotional. when it's done in that way, relational. it will be aligned on all levels. Correct. Correct. Now, let's be honest. Most people who come to, let's say, their first 12-step meeting aren't doing it because they're looking to explore deeper intimacy. <laughs> no one's coming in for that reason at, at their first meeting. They're coming because my life's falling apart. I hate myself. It's either this or, or, or die. So in early recovery, you don't talk a whole lot about, you know, the, the ultimate alignment of the spiritual, the physical, the, <laughs> of, of what does intimacy really mean? And, and, and how, do, how can you bring your, your sexuality into your connection with oneness? That's, that's not something that somebody in their first 24 hours is probably ready to hear. Right. I became more sensitive. Like as, as I was thinking about who might be on this call, I thought there may be a number of people listening in now or in the future who have already shared their secrets, have already embarked on a path, or already you know, in recovery for a period of time, but they're still feeling some of that shame. There's still that feeling. And just saying, share your secret, write that email, send that message, uh, you know, book that session with a therapist is not the answer for that person because they're past that. So what is the message to them is that we're not here to get away from the worst parts of life. We're here to embrace the best of life. If 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 um, so, so if recovery doesn't offer me everything that addiction did, the good parts of addiction, right? Everything that it did, 
on like times 10, then why would I go? Why, why do I want to be there? If I had that great feeling of sitting with my friends in the bar, laughing and drinking, and like that was a highlight of my week, why would I trade that for a recovery where I don't get to sit and, you know, hang out with my friends laughing? Like, I, I love that experience. Yeah, there was some other stuff that weren't there. And I think oftentimes these lifestyles are uh, presented as this, uh, this sort of, uh, you know, ascetic lifestyle. We're moving away right. Very from austere, all of these things. Very Correct. Spartan. But uh, Ellie, I, wa I want to go even deeper than that because it's not just, oh, um, I used to have such a good time having fun with my friends at the bar, okay? Let, let's go deeper than that. You, you're talking about what was the addiction doing? What was it, what purpose was it serving? Because right. if, if it didn't serve a purpose, no one would do it. Obviously, you wouldn't it's serving do it. a purpose. Right. Especially not considering the cost most people see it's exact Correct. in their life. Correct. So obviously it's serving some type of purpose. Okay, what purpose is it serving? So you could say fun, you could say pleasure, but I want to go deeper than that. I want to go deeper than that. Um, there are experiences which are sufficiently intense enough, whether they be through chemicals or whether they uh, be other types of stimulus. But these experiences are stimulating enough and they're intense enough to draw me out of myself for a, a short period of time. And to be free from, to finally be relieved from myself, from my own self-consciousness, my own self-awareness, my own thoughts, the self-talk, which is incessant, the, the self-awareness, the, the terminal uniqueness of always looking around and feeling, you know, where do I belong? Are people looking at me? I, I, where, how can, where do I fit in? What do people think about me? All of this deep, deep, deep stuff that's almost unavoidable, inescapable, because it's like that is identity. That is self-concept. Self and and it, be, it can become unrelenting. It can become just, it wears away at a person and, and they need an escape. Where can I go? Where can I escape from me? Wherever I go, there I am. And then you find an experience which is sufficiently intense enough, whether it's pleasurable or it's numbing or it's different people seek different types of self-medication. Self some people like high, some people like low. Some people like adrenaline, some people like heroin, some people like uh, dopamine. The, different, the point is, I have an experience which is intense enough and stimulating enough that it allows me to have an escape from me for a moment. And that's what every addiction really does. That's the purpose that it serves. And so when you say, will recovery give me what I used to find in the addiction before it started having too many side effects, the answer is not only will recovery give you what you were looking for, in the addiction but what you were trying to get out of the addiction all along was what right. you only could have found in recovery and that is the only real way to be, be to be free from the bondage of self the only real way to transcend ego and that feeling of of separateness is through union with god 
And that's why the solution here, the solution here is the problem turned on its head. The problem is it's an intimacy destroyer. It destroys relationships with other human beings. It destroys relationships with your own self. It destroys relationships with, between you and God. It's an intimacy destroyer. Both porn the, and shame are. Both of them, whichever subject. They're synonymous. Correct. It's all one thing. That's why it's a destroyer of intimacy. Because it draws attention to the self-concept. That's why sexual abuse is, is so devastating, because it forces somebody to look at their own selfhood before they're ready to, in a way that's far too intense to look at it before they're ready to, in ways that are, that is, that are unsafe and jarring and, and, and shocking to the system. The point is that selfhood and sexuality are synonymous and always have been since the time of the tree of knowledge. And the two are inseparable. And therefore, if, <laughs> it's tragic to describe the cycle again, but if my experience of sexuality is making me more self-conscious, and let's say the self-consciousness is specifically my own self-loathing about my sexual failures, what's going to happen is that I'm going to seek out more distraction from that, which is going to cause me more self-obsession. So the only way, and here's the answer to the people who are asking, well, what do we actually do? What do we do? What do we, you know what you do? <laughs> Find God. Oh, but God's been my problem because I have all this religious guilt. No, no, no. Put aside the religious guilt for a second. Find God. Can you find God in your story of failure? Can you find God in your story of feeling separate, alone, isolated? Can you find God in this story? Can you somehow see how the culmination of this journey will bring you closer to him. The the tshuva ma'ava, like it talks about in Tanya in chapter 7, that when you return out of love, so then darkness becomes light, and the, the, the sins become merits. Can you say that if not for this assault to my selfhood, which made me hyper self-aware, I would never have been able to achieve this level of surrender where I can be this self-transcendent, this humble, this selfless, this service-oriented, as opposed to self-oriented. So you want to know the solution? This is the solution. The solution isn't giving yourself ultimatums, giving, taking an oath, a solemn vow, um, making promises, um, hearing scarier uh, fire and brimstone speeches. The solution is to realize that, <laughs> that you're in search of wholeness. You're in search of intimacy with God. And that means vulnerability, and that means facing all of your fears. See, who knew? If someone knew that becoming addicted to porn meant that in order to recover, they'd have to face all of their fears, they would never start watching porn, because who wants to face all of their fears? But <laughs> this is you know what, what we're talking about. 
We're talking about deep healing. A healing of what? What part of me was broken? What part of me was injured? What part? Not a part. Your essence. And therefore, it is your essence which is going to be healed. And it's your essence which is going to be revealed through this process, which is an, an amazing thing. And no one could ever give you permission to purposely engage in such a descent for the sake of a radical ascent. If you would ask someone, are you allowed to fall so low in order to rise so high? No, you're not allowed. Premeditated? Never. God forbid. Anyone says, I'm going to purposely sin in order to return? No, you're not allowed. But we're talking about someone who already is there. They don't, they don't need to go out and find, and find a way to fall. They fall in. How can you take that fall and see it in the continuum, in the bigger picture, as a story of true healing of your essence and of your intimate connection with God? And if it's anything short of that, it's not powerful enough. And dare I say, if it's anything less than that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth, it wouldn't be enough of a payoff to have to go through the hell that it takes to go through in order to get to it. Right. Right. I'm going to share, I'm going to share a story. Um, I, th I think it connects well with what you're saying, but maybe it's a little jarring, but it's, it's true. It's a true story. So this guy reached out to me um, years ago, years ago, he reached out to me and somehow I missed his message. It was when I was talking about sexual abuse and doing those speeches. And then um, he gave up. He had tried through, I don't know, Facebook or a different medium. Um, and when he saw me do a talk on porn addiction, he reached out to me again. It's like five years later. And the first time I spoke to him, like I knew there was like a really, really shameful secret he was holding on to. I just saw it. He was, he was asking me a lot of questions. He shared his first name, but he wasn't telling me much. And I just sense that there was a really shameful secret holding on to. So I said, just, I said, listen, I said, if I haven't done it myself, I'm a friend of mine has like, you know, it's, you're asking me questions about sexual abuse, sexuality, like these kind of things. Like I've heard the story. Or I've been there myself. It's, uh, you know, just, you can speak comfortably. You're in a safe place. Just say what you need to say. You're not going to knock me off my feet. I'll be okay. So he shares with me that he was abused sexually more times than he can imagine. And the abuse never really stopped. Like there isn't a clear like day that is abused. So for example, he, he entered into a kind of relationship with a, a man who was 20 years older than his was sexually abusing him. And it continued into adulthood. So it started as a teenager and continued into adulthood. So at what day was he a consenting adult? And at what day was he a, um, a, a child who was being abused by this, this adult? this was someone who grew up from eventually that became for lack of a better term his orientation it's what he, he, he wasn't sure was this who he was attracted to was it not it was the only thing he ever knew he was only with men and it was he was in his late 30s davening every day to fill in like the works his life was from shabbos kosher everything else but this was like this part of him that he could not reconcile he could he absolutely couldn't reconcile with and uh, we started speaking fairly regularly, and 
And I say that's why there isn't like a solution. Like I've never been able to, I like that you're saying that because I've never been able to uh, find it myself or offer someone. I go to one meeting, I get the magic bullet. I read one book, I get the magic bullet. It quite literally is when someone asks me about porn, I say whatever it takes, like addiction, you embark on the path of whatever it takes in order to, to kick this. And whatever it takes is going, to, is going to take you to different places. And for me, I can, you want to share, you want me to tell you my story? Whatever it takes is me right here, right now, inclusive. Does that mean that this is going to be your path in eight, nine years because you started maybe, yeah, maybe no. It's each, each soul has its expression and each person has his journey and his way of, um, his, his, his way of going. Can but I, can you I enter on the path. for a second? Because yeah. I don't know if everybody caught that. Were you just Go saying ahead. that right now, being here right now, talking right now is part of your recovery? Correct. Yes, of course. Okay. I, I don't know if that was clear to everyone. See, I, I think a, they think a, a that it was some revolutionary thing that happened for you. And now you're free. Now you're out of it. You said it before. What is out of it? <laughs> This that you and I are talking right now, and we're we're connecting, and we're connecting on a very deep level. I mean, we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about psychology, we're talking, I mean, about emotions. This connection we're having right now is part of your recovery and part of your journey from a place that when you were in it, you were feeling disconnection correct okay so i i just want people to hear what what we were really describing when we're talking about the healing journey right it's not a it's it's not it's start and it's over it may take on a different form when i started they told me come to a meeting every day for 90 days okay now now that's it doesn't look like that but it's there's no less a commitment to the process and i don't the same thing happens like I, I i there it can easily reverse itself there isn't this sense of i am cured there's a sense of i found things that work for me and i continue to do them and if you start i mean spell it out and if you start self-isolating and feeling self-pity right I'll, you can reverse god forbid yeah i know and i've and i've experienced it and I've, I've i've experienced those processes years of um now, I want to say sober. Sober is not a good word because dead people are sober too. Years of being in a place that I, I felt like, it doesn't mean no bad days, but I felt, you know, I say, I wasn't thinking about drinking. I wasn't thinking about not drinking, right? Years of feeling liberation from it. Years of, yeah, I'm talking about not watching porn because that's the way my service expresses itself today. But I'm not thinking about not watching porn. I'm not like, okay, don't go here or go there. It's not you know, I had a lock on my phone for years as an example. I don't have a lock on my phone today. I'm not like every single website. I got to be careful not that my fingers don't type. And then it was like that for a while. So it's certainly it changes, it evolves, but there's no less a commitment to the process of I'm doing certain things in order to maintain uh, the level of freedom that I have. And I know that it can revert back. And I want to bring back to this, this individual. So he, he's struggling mightily and is addiction is manifesting itself and always pixels people, you know, everything. And obviously he has this additional level of shame that his addiction is expressing itself with people of the same sex. And the fact that he's still religious, but it's the only thing he knows. And, you know, 
He said, I've tried to date women. I, I can't. What am I? Should I tell them? Should I not tell them? There's nowhere to go for me. So uh, I asked him, I said, um, you say you pray every day, right? You daven every day. Who do you pray to? It's God. So, so where is he in the story? Where is he in your story? So what do you mean where is he in my story? So was he there when you were abused? The first time, the second time, the third time? Right? Was he there all those times? He says, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Right? I said, Either he was there or he wasn't there. Was he there? Okay, yes, he was there. Okay, are you angry at him? Uh, how can you be angry at God? Like, why can't you be angry at God? I said, a relationship? Or it's not, I'd be pretty angry. This guy sent me on this journey. I'm angry. I mean, if that's where it starts, if that's where the communication has to start, that's where the communication has to start. Should it start? I'm going to repeat the same sentence. Okay, it says, Maida'ani, Barakata. Okay, same thing in the world. But that's not where you're feeling right now, right? The relationship is going to start with, hey, what the hell, right? I've shared with, uh, I've shared sometimes almost everyone that I've worked with, I've advised them to write two letters. The thank you letter to porn and the F you letter to God, right? I don't mean literally, right? F you letter, but there's probably some anger in your story. There's some resentment and you're trying to get to a path, you said, of having a relationship with God. So where is it at now? Where's, where's the relationship now? If, if my God doesn't have big enough shoulders to hear my anger, to hear my disappointment, to ask me why as an eight-year-old child, he decided to drag me into this guy's room and abuse me, that that was my path. And if he wasn't part of the equation, then what? Then, then who is he? And if he was part of the equation, then why did he do that? But I, I'm, I said, the only thing is, when you ask the question, be prepared that there might be a response, <laughs> right? It's like, why do you, like, why did you do that to me? Okay, be prepared. There may be a response. You may actually find, as you go through your story, you may find something beautiful in it. You may actually find a reason or a, a beauty or some gem that can be uncovered from the fact that you went into the way that you went into the into it in that way. And it took a long time, probably three or four conversations, for him to feel comfortable to write the letter to, to just start like God. I think the way he started, he shared the letter with me. God, I'm angry with you. And I, to me, sometimes that's the way when we say we want to drag God into the story, we got, he's got to be able to meet us. If he's big enough, if his shoulders are big enough, he's got to meet us where we're at. And that's where we're at right now. I have all this anger and all this resentment at either this, either this entity didn't do it, right? I said, either, either God, either I hate him or he doesn't exist, right? So yeah, so I went back and forth between those two things. So if I'm accepting that he exists, okay, so I'm in the hate right now. And I have to be able to express that. And that itself, to me, is where the process started and where I encourage others to start the process is start there and start that level of communication and dialogue, but be open, be open to hear something in, in response. And in my own case, I found it, and I've shared with, with others that if I was writing my own story, if I was given authorship over it, and I've heard this, tell me if I'm right, that the soul enters into a contract before it enters the world, and it does get authorship over its story. And it chooses to go through its experiences that it does. So the way I say it now is that if I was given the pen and say, Ellie, write your own story, I would choose those most difficult moments from childhood. And then the moments more recently, there's certainly some moments in the last couple of years that I would not choose to add to it. Okay, so now I say that those have to be worked on. Those are the experiences that still that God needs to be brought into. He hasn't been brought into yet because I'm not accepting it of it. Is that soul contract point? Have you heard that? That a soul before it enters the world signs up? Is that a Jewish concept? 
when Hashem created the world, it says, with whom did Hashem consult? It says he consulted with the Neshamas. So it, it, it's not only that um, the soul has agency, but it's that, so to speak, Hashem gave us authority over the whole project, whether or not he should create and create all everything the creation means with all of the difficulties that that entails for each of us. So it's like, when did I ever sign up for this? Sign up for it? You created it. You created it. Are you saying that? <laughs> right. Okay, partner in creating it. Right. Okay, I hear that, but there's a collective to it. Okay, so maybe it wasn't like my soul that was engaged in it. The way I heard it, <laughs> right, the way, the way I heard it was, let's say someone grew up in intense poverty, right? A very, very intense poverty, crushing poverty. The soul before it the world, do you agree to enter the world knowing that you're going to go through the experience of the physical pain of intense poverty? Or maybe of losing a parent very young, or maybe being sexually abused, or maybe an addiction. And until the soul says, I'm in, doesn't get it. I, I don't know where I heard this, but I heard it. The question is getting back to the, the theme, tonight's uh, title of uh, tonight's discussion. If your soul knew before it came to the world, what it would mean to have a body and the wiring neurologically and, and, and biochemically what it meant to be a sexual being and the challenge that that inherently entails and the risk, the major, major risk involved there. Would your soul accept such a, a mission? And I think part of healing, for anyone who's watching <laughs> this and they're still in the middle of the struggle, I think part of healing is to be able to answer that question and say, yes, yes, my soul would be willing to face this specific challenge. And uh, anything short of that, what do I mean? Anything short of that. What I mean is an attempt to just sort of say, look, this is a weakness and I'm going to master it. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get on top of it. I'm going to get control over it. Okay. So try that. So try it. And if that works, that's fantastic. I I'm only concerned with the bottom line. Obviously the net results are what matters to me. So if you can by willpower, say, I'm going to get a handle on this, and I'm going to get more motivated, I'm going to read some more fire and brimstone, and then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to get control over it. If that works for you, that's, that's fantastic. But um, what you may find is that the very fact that this issue is so uniquely all-consuming is because it is calling upon you to engage in a solution that is uniquely all-consuming. 
I love that. And to examine your entire life and existence and purpose. So with all apologies to the people who want practical tricks and tips. <laughs> yeah, so what's, what's the practical tip and trick? Eight years into your sobriety journey, do a podcast with a rabbi for three hours. <laughs> I mean, that's your journey. It's, uh, <laughs> every person out there is going to have a unique journey. But what's clear is it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's going to call upon your essence. Nothing less than that. And it's going to call upon you to enter with your essence into an intimate relationship with God's essence. Nothing less than that. So, so, so I want to refine you. So you're saying that these things crush our essence. Yeah. And engage our essence. Yes. <laughs> and then the solution is to do that, to fully engage our essence. Yes. And then all of these experiences, the ones that we felt shameful for, the one we felt guilty of, the one we felt angry at God for and everything else, we see it as part and parcel of engaging our essence. Like had yeah. these, had this not happened, and that's, you know, I share it with people is that some, some people go through a specific level of pain, experience a specific level of pain. And I don't think there's a threshold for everyone. I think anyone who has children knows that there's, um, we, we come in with different sensitivities. So some may be, on paper, it wasn't such a crazy experience, but they're very sensitive to... There's no you know, one definition of, of rock bottom. <laughs> right. There's no one, one definition of rock bottom, but there's also no one definition of a difficult experience. Right. 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 It's two people can go through identical homes, you know, twins practically, right? Identical mm -hmm. experiences, same level of property. One is, right, I can't... Uh, they they can't uh, they can't find themselves and the other seems to be okay so when what my experience when someone reaches a certain level of pain in their life whatever that is then it's it's kind of like they don't have the choice so the way you said it in uh, God of Our Understanding is everyone's going to benefit from spirituality right but for the average person it's a luxury for the addict it's a necessity like right. there's a certain level of pain that call, call it a blessing call it not it engages you and say okay you, you have no choice for you spirituality is a necessity okay the other person may or may not find it but there's a select group of people who are chosen they're going to find it they're they're going to have to find it it's a necessity for them to experience any sort of peace in their life and sometimes it looks Right. What's nice about it, my sponsor says, recovery. You don't think this. Recovery is very rec recovery is unpredictable. The addiction is very predictable. Mm. The addiction, you know, you know where you're going. <laughs> you know going to happen. Right? You know where you're going. You know what you're going to feel. Okay, there's some variety. You're the kind of addict, you know, who doesn't like whiskey every night. Right? Sometimes you like bourbon. Sometimes you like, you know, a couple of beers. That's the level of variety. But you're getting to the same feeling. <laughs> you're getting to the same place. And there's something about, he says, recovery, you enter a path, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where it's going to take you. And the demand is almost of a, uh, I don't know, a spiritual or not quite like something you can put your finger on and it just moves in that direction and it unfolds and it takes you where it needs to take you and you go where you need to go. And some 
are kind of thrust into that path. And it's like, okay, you either do this or you feel this uh, existential terminal uniqueness, <laughs> self-consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Right. Can you address the, um, the, I don't know if you see the Q and A, there's a last question over there. I, I can address it, but. Yeah, I see the Q and A. Yeah, the last one where it says, but addiction allows the freeing. So it's anonymous. People don't see the names other than I think us. So we don't have to mention the name, but just the, uh, the question. About, but addiction allows the freeing of self at any time. Yeah. I want it. I'm sitting here telling God to come, but he doesn't. If I spark, spark my blunt, I have it on demand. Yeah. Well, see, that's the opposite of intimacy. That is what can this thing or this person do for me right now? I'm burdened when a person becomes things make my self-consciousness feel worse, but that's it. I'm stuck, stuck in that trap. So uh, I'm going to seek out pleasure. I'm going to try to avoid pain and I'm going to evaluate everything based on what it can do for me. And that's how I'll look at people. What can people do for me? And uh, when seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain becomes one's entire preoccupation, that may be synonymous with addiction. Maybe that would be a one, one working definition of, a, uh, of addiction, where I have no other job than to figure out how to not feel bad and try to feel good. Recovery would be the exact opposite. I'm not going to try to manage what makes me feel one way or another. I'm not even going to try. That's not my job anymore. My job is not to figure out what's going to make me feel good and what's going to make me feel bad. My job is to be of service. Hineni, like you said, recovery can look so many different ways because you're just writing a blank check. That's it. I'm showing up. Whatever I'm going to be called upon to do, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm here reporting for duty, sir. So, you know, when you describe, I call God, he doesn't come on demand. I take my <laughs> drug of choice, boom, it's obedient, it's faithful, it's reliable, does the trick until it doesn't anymore or until <laughs> it does, but it lasts for two seconds and the consequences last for two months or whatever, whatever diminishing return there may be. But that's, that's the addiction. What is it going to do for me? Come, I called you. I called you. Come on, get over here. The recovery is the exact opposite. I'm reporting to God and saying, I'm here. I'm here for you. How can you use me? How can I be of service at this moment? How can I do something for one of your children? What am I going to get out of it? I stopped worrying about what I'm going to get out of it. I, I can't, I can't, I can't go down that road. Some people, maybe they can, they can dabble casually <laughs> in what makes me feel good. What makes me feel bad? No, I can't. I can't go down that road. I, I have to just be surrendered. I have to be mission driven. And if I do that, 
everything else will work itself out. Like we were speaking about before, if I'm spiritually healthy, then everything else is going to come into alignment sooner or later. And it's going to be good for me on all levels, psychologically, emotionally, socially, physically, emotionally. So when, when this person in the Q&A is describing, you know, God's not, he's not as reliable as my drug of choice. That's right. That's exactly the point. Recovery isn't realizing, oh, God is a better drug than all the drugs. It's realizing that what I was trying to get by filling myself up, I'm never going to get. But if I forget about filling myself up and I just try to be of service to others and to my maker, something wild happens and that peace and that relief and that freedom from pain that I was seeking, it crept up on me <laughs> as, a, as a side benefit of trying to live a useful life. So, you know, you're sitting here, you're talking to me, probably your, 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 your most conscious motivation is it may help somebody. Now, does it make you feel good? Probably also makes you feel good. But that's not why you're doing it. That's a side benefit. The minute you start doing these things because it makes you feel good, that becomes your new addiction. And then that can turn on you, will turn on you. So it, it, this, is, this is about flipping the whole paradigm flipping the whole paradigm. I'm not trying to self-medicate. I'm not trying to numb. I'm not trying to make yourself comfortable anymore. I'm reporting for duty in God's reality as he's making it this moment, prepared to feel completely uncomfortable. And then something will well, happen. So there's someone, uh, I was talking to him the other day, and uh, this guy who's of means and gives money, and he said, I told myself um, a couple of years ago, I was like enjoying it too much from seeing my name on stuff that I have to do everything anonymously. It's coming from arrogance. So I said, okay, here. So he said, what do you think about that? So I said, I think you'd make a weak soldier. <laughs> so he said, what do you mean? I said, if the general gives the order, give this one anonymously. And the next one, he gives the order, give this one publicly. <laughs> You're you're only capable of listening to one of the orders. You're not much of a soldier. Hmm. <laughs> so right, right. The right. That's been um, right. That's been. We always get to a certain point in a conversation. That's been like an interesting part of kind of my journey, where my instinct is always to kind of be behind the scenes, to not be public. My I had a very powerful fear of public speaking at a certain point in time. When I got into recovery, my fear of sharing in the meetings with six people, seven people was so, was so palpable. Wow. But slowly that started pushing out and like it turned the whole thing, it turned the whole thing on its head, you know, where a lot of stuff that I saw as my personality, I'm a loner, I'm quiet, I'm private, I'm this for whatever, <laughs> whatever reason, I didn't plan some of these things, I felt the moment of inspiration. I said, I have to do a TED, I have to do a TED talk. And I just felt that feeling and I felt where I thought it was coming. So, okay, that has to happen. And then from there, one, one, to, uh, one to another. But it's, 
So when you write some ways, points for how to recover, you have to write, give a TED talk. It's one of the bullet points. How do you recover? <laughs> right. You have to give a TED talk. Right. Right. That was literally experience. And you say, you know what? You start saying yes. You start even this one. We said, you mentioned it as an idea. You said, hey, I said, okay, you know, it's coming. Let's have this conversation about uh about shame. But I see the risk, right? You say there's always the um what do you call it? like the occupational hazards, like each one presents itself with with a different risk. So the point you're making over here, because you say, okay, like you start liking this, you start liking this mission after a while. So, okay, I enjoy this. All right, this is this one's a fun one. This one's meaningful. This one's everything else. And then that too becomes, and then you become a poor soldier again because maybe the next mission, maybe the next mission is very uh very different. Uh-huh. So very interesting. Okay, maybe uh, maybe over there we went uh, a little past, a little over some uh, some heads, but it's okay. It's okay. It's okay because there will be one person who's ready, and they'll hear this and they'll say, "This sounds way more demanding than I ever dreamed it would be." but it sounds right and you'll get an email or i'll get an email from this person maybe not today but uh i'll tell you one thing that i've learned from experience any time i've gone out publicly speaking about this kind of stuff there's always one person sometimes it happens the next day sometimes it happens a month later a year later there's always one person who says that I was at a turning point in my life and this came <clears throat> at the perfect moment. So, you know, we're putting it out there for, for whoever, but for one person, this is, it's worth it. No, I've, I've had that. I shared at the beginning of this about uh, um, Brene Brown and the shame. And I remember being in a incredibly dark place one night and seeing her Ted talk on, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, it was on shame. It was on vulnerability. I think it was something about vulnerability, the power of vulnerability, something. And I watched that talk. And from that talk, I reached out to someone for help. I remember that. So you never know. They live there and that spark is, you know, two in the morning after another bout of way mm-hmm. too much porn and feeling completely demoralized. And then feeling like I'm supposed to feel good because my business is doing okay. So I don't even get to feel shame because who am I going to call and say, like, I'm feeling miserable. I say, what do you have to complain about? (laughs) See, I'm not so worried about how many people are on the Zoom right now. What what I'm thinking about is the person who's watching this. It's now five in the morning. Okay, (laughs) This is two hours and 50 whatever minutes into this recording. They started watching it, like you said, at 2 a.m. after about... Now it's probably five. watching them in double speed. It's not so bad. And uh, you can't watch me on double speed, speed, by the way. You can't what? watch me on double speed. Maybe one and a quarter. You can't turn one me on and a double quarter. speed. Okay. So Someone told me that. It says, Ellie, you do these very long podcasts, and I can't put on double speed. You talk too fast. So, so we'll say it's 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. <laughs> and uh, that, that's, that's the person who this is for. This is the person who's watching this, and it's 4 a.m. right now. Hi. How are you doing? Um, Ellie? Speak to the person who it's 4 a.m. right now, and he's ready to change. He's listening. She's listening. 
They are listening right now. What's that message? And I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up on this uh, this note, so Joe Rogan doesn't feel threatened at the length of our podcast and comes after yeah. us. <laughs> um, someone who's at that place. You know, I wonder if we scared them, because had I known, we scared out, we scared off everybody else. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, the only one watching is the person saying. They see right into me. How do they know all this about me? <laughs> Tell me what to do and I'll do it. So go ahead. <laughs> there's one person left. Yeah, there's one guy left, but it's fine. It's all for him or her. Right. I, th I, think, I, I, th I think you get to a place that you... Um, not you get to a place. You'll get to a place. Someone who embarks on this path will get to the place, this place where they feel, and it's not from a, an arrogant place, it's not from an egotistical place, they feel that there's a unique contribution that they can make. Not that they can make, that they need to make. Literally, that they need to make. It needs to be made. And um, they'll feel it, they'll feel it deeply, they'll feel it intensely. And that day, that day exists on the horizon by following this path. And once that's there, that feeling, it doesn't, it doesn't quite leave us. It can be felt more intensely or less intensely, but that feeling of, it's not I matter, it's more than I matter. It's that I'm like, I'm, I'm important to this machine. There's a role that's, that's so perfect, so specific. And all of the experiences and all of the challenges, especially the challenge, not all of them, especially the challenges, especially those most difficult moments. And I like the way you spoke about it in terms of engaging the essence, like these experiences engage the essence, not engage, they, they crush the essence. And by crushing the essence, they engage the essence. So now the essence is here, it's engaged, and that's what we need, we need your essence. And that's, so while it's hard to imagine, because when you're feeling in that place, it's like, okay, not me, I'll never get there. I, uh, if you're listening this late, I encourage you to trust me and embark on the path. I think the path often starts by asking for help and then listening to the answer. You know, um, when in, in that question that you answered, first said, I tell God to come and he doesn't come. So maybe stop telling him. Stop telling him what to do, ask him. And then see what happens. It's a different experience. And calling someone and asking for help, but then listening to their response and listening to what it is they offer and the path they take it on. I, I remember that day when I called the person who became my first sponsor. And I'd already spoken with him, I already had the lunch, I already seen a little bit, right? I'd gone to a couple of meetings, but I'm like, do I really need this? Do I really need to like cut it all out? Is there a way that I can still have some of it? Okay, so it got too much, fine. But I got to go to these meetings with these crazies. Like, is this the, what I have to step into? And I'm not saying for everyone's path, it's 12 steps. Like it's not, everyone has a different path and people have found meaning and purpose and value and peace in, in many different ways. For me, it was the meetings. I remember after this, I, I called him. I was just, I was desperate. I was desperate. I'd, I just acted out and it did nothing for me. You know, it did nothing for me, which brings me to the second part of this question. If I spark by my, my splunt, I have it on demand for now. 
for now. I had it the same way. I had a ritual that was my go-to ritual in my toughest moments. And I didn't want to go to it too often without going to the specifics, it's not relevant. I didn't want to go to it too often because I was afraid I would burn it out. I was afraid if, I, if it became commonplace, even though it was accessible, it was something that I could do as often as I wanted. I said, I reserve it for special occasions. And this was what a special occasion mean that I felt like hell. And I, I went on this occasion, engaged in this special ritual, and I walked out feeling nothing. It didn't hit the spot. It didn't do anything for me. I felt the same pain I felt before I felt afterwards. And I walked out. I walked out of that place, and I said, oh, man, what's next? Where does this go to from here? Fortunately, I had this guy's number because I'd gone to a couple of meetings, and my therapist introduced me to him. I remember that feeling when I called him, and I called him. I said, tell me what I got to do. Anything. I need your help. Anything. Tell me what I got to do. And he, he gave me a very modest list to start. It was a very, very modest list. But the question, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm recommending. That's that whole long to do was call someone and ask for help, but ask for help. Don't tell them to help you. Ask for help. I called this person. I chose this person. It was him, not someone else. And he had his direction that he gave to me. In that moment, trust it. You're speaking from your essence. That guy will speak from your essence. That guy or girl will speak from his essence. You're going to get a message that's for you. And I got a message that seemed to be simple, but landed me on a path that I'm still on today and I'll never leave. I think that help is out there. People know where to find help. And I respect the fact that you're being very humble and not insisting that people find the same solution that you found. Um, you're saying for you, it was the 12 step program and you're being very humble and you're saying it doesn't have to be that for everybody. And that, you know, you've seen people who found other solutions. I'm not saying for porn. I've found other solutions. Other problems have other solutions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you've, you've said what worked for you. You've described it very clearly that it's not just, uh, you know, go to a couple of meetings for a few weeks. It's a, a lifetime devotion to service, selflessness, being true to your deepest self and your deepest mission. And, uh, you know, it becomes a lot more than just how to not watch porn. Correct. It's almost a, uh, how, how many meetings do I go to today that I even hear the word porn in it? Very few. That's less than, less than half. I'll tell you something. If you go to a really, really good meeting, you wouldn't even know which fellowship you're at. That's true. You wouldn't know That's if true. it's SA or AA <laughs> or NA because they're talking about the same thing. Right. Giving our life and our will over to the care of God, being of service. And that's it. You would, you would hardly know why they ended up there. The, the only thing I'll, I'll add is be prepared to be misunderstood. It's not so bad. Be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. For persons already feeling isolated, you know, like saying, Already nobody understands you. So, okay. So you'll have something good and uh, people won't understand it. 
You're saying the people will misunderstand your recovery. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm saying that's it. Like, be prepared to be misunderstood. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, no, it's not a bad thing. You want to know something funny though? <laughs> Somebody talks about their addiction, why they like pornography. They won't be misunderstood. Right. If they talk about the solution, how they found <laughs> God. Is and living life on God's terms and being of service, then they will be misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they say, Ellie, how do you have time for this stuff? I said, when I was going to strip clubs, no one asked me how I had time. <laughs> I, never, I never had to explain it. Yeah. Suddenly I'm taking a phone call from someone. Ellie, how do you have time to take a phone call from someone? Okay, because I don't go to strip clubs anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. On that note... Chase, as always, yeah, it was wonderful speaking with you. I'm inspired. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, I hope we get to do it again. Anytime. Ellie, you call anytime I'll be there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, but I won't, don't wait for my call. I won't wait for yours. We'll wait for, ah, for call. <laughs> when he calls. <laughs> when he calls, he's got two soldiers. That's right. Have a good night. Good night. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Rabbi Chase Taub. I'm sure you can hear at the end. Um, I was moved at the end of that conversation. Inspired, touched, humbled. You know, Rabbi Chase has shared with me that uh, not everyone thinks he should sit down with me. They think that as a rabbi sitting down, talking with me, and exploring some of these conversations is not a good look for him. I'd love to hear what some of you think. Um, if you'd like to share it with Rabbi Taub, if you think it's a good idea that he and I have these conversations, if you were moved that a rabbi chose to sit down with me and talk about these topics and the way he did and the way he does, then send him a note. Visit him at soulwords.org and let him know what you think about us sitting down together. Do a specific way you were moved by it. It's very powerful for me to hear a rabbi speak in the way he does. Very healing for me to hear a rabbi speak in the way he does. It's spiritual for him, for me to hear a rabbi speak in the way he does. And if you too are moved, I encourage you to reach out to him. Soulwords.org. Contact us and let him know you heard our conversation and how it moved him. And if you think he shouldn't speak to me, <laughs> and it's not a good look for him, go ahead and let him know that as well. Feedback is always good. Always heard. Not always followed. Have a great day.